Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another edition of The Bat Around. I'm your host, Paul Valley, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Zach Goodman. Zach, how are you today? I'm good, Paul. Did you have a uh, good holiday? Yeah, man. You know, my holiday wasn't uh, wasn't too bad. You know, got to see the family, got to spend a weekend with my dad, which is always nice. And in fact, it was uh, it was the second straight month I got to spend a weekend with my dad that even that th- even before uh, th- we started doing the show every Saturday, I never spent a weekend in back-to-back months with my dad. So that's that's always nice. Now, if this show is a little uh, sounds a little bit different to you today, uh, that's because it is a little bit different. Uh, we are audio only today, so no intro music. Um, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to have the ability to do any breaks either. So we're kind of just uh, we're kind of just going here. We're, we we uh, we came into the studio today with no MacBook to do our audio, to do our breaks, to put up our our Facebook sponsors. Um, not really sure. Uh, what's going on here? The MacBook, I'm sure, is just out for repairs, you know, something like that. But, you know, we're going to soldier on anyway, and we're going to do this show from the Chesapeake Employers Insurance Studio. Have a great show coming up for you today. We're going to have Stan the Fan Charles on the line at 1020. Uh, then, at, well, maybe a little bit after that, uh, because we got a little bit of a late start here. Then at 1050, we're going to have um, Craig Heist on to talk about the Nationals. At 11.35, we're going to have Todd Karpovich from uh, it's Press Box's own. Todd Karpovich, uh, he writes for Sports Illustrated, Utah Street Report, Russell Street Report, uh, PressBoxSportsOnline.com, and he's going to be on 11.35 to talk about the Orioles. We're also going to do a little bit of Orioles banter today. We're going to talk about the five best Orioles seasons that did not result in a World Series appearance. Zach has no idea what seasons I picked. I have no idea what seasons he picked. So we're going to... Uh, we're going to figure out the, uh, together what our top five non-World Series appearance seasons are. Some news for the Orioles uh, in the two weeks that we've been off. Um, they signed a new third base and infield coach, uh, Tony Mansolino. He's 38 years old, played collegially with Ryan Flaherty at Vanderbilt. He played six years of minor league ball in the Pirates organization before starting his coaching career. Started his coaching career as a hitting coach of the Mahoning Valley um, Scrapers in the Cleveland organization. Ended up getting promoted to manager of the Lake County uh, of the Lake County Captains in 2016. Then managed the Lynchburg Hillcats in 2017, where he was named Carolina League Manager of the Year. Uh, promoted to manage the Akron Rubber Ducks in 2018 and then the Columbus Clippers in 2019, where he led the Clippers to the International League title. Uh, Zach, this is a guy who was heading up the alternate training site for Cleveland this past year. Uh, but then Terry Francona came down with a medical condition, only managed for 14 games, uh, and they promoted Sandy Alomar Jr. to interim manager, which in turn moved the third-base coach Mike Sarball to bench coach, and that allowed a promotion from Manzalino to third-base coach. He will now serve as the Orioles' third-base coach and infield coach, though the team has not made a formal announcement. Yeah, I think it's a good hire. I mean, I think he has a lot of experience, just based on what I can see in the past that he's done. He's managed a lot of places, manager of the year, like you said. So that's all good things, and that's all things that Orioles fans should be excited about. Um, and, and the one thing that really stands out to me is that he was at that alternate training site, and that means he has a lot of experience with prospects and young guys, which obviously the Orioles are going to have a lot of on the on the teams in the next few years. Uh, third base coach, never really a, a coaching position that matters that much because you know, you're waving guys around home and you're, you're giving your signals and it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's not something like manager or bench coach, but still an important position. And of course we need these infielders to be as well coached as possible behind this young pitching staff. 
Well, if you talk to Ryan Flaherty about it, he seems to think that this is a really great hire for the Orioles. Uh, this is a guy who's had serious success at the minor league level as a manager. So it makes sense that he would be promoted to a third base coach, that he would be the infield coach. Uh, I see future promotions if he does well here. Third base coach is more than just, you know, windmilling your arm around and sending people home or putting your hands up to, to stop them. Infield, in, infield coach as well. So yeah, it, it's, yeah. It's, it's a bigger deal than that, but it's it's not as important as manager. I, I always think about, as far as coaches go, how important they really are because there are so many managers that come and go throughout the MLB every year, and you never really get a sense for how important they are to their team, but there are definitely good managers, bad managers, good coaches, bad coaches. Um, so, some, uh, some more news for people around the MLB. Uh, the, the Padres had a big week. Song Kim, the hot-hitting shortstop uh, from the KBO, he signed with the San Diego Padres for four years, $25 million, and the Padres paid an additional $5 million posting fee. This is a guy that we had mentioned quite a few times already on this show because I was one of the ones who really, really wanted him on the Baltimore Orioles, but obviously that was pretty unlikely as the Orioles aren't really going to spend a lot of money right now. But he went to the Padres, and the Padres had a big week. They, they traded for Hugh Darvish. They traded for Blake Snell. They've got one of the top five organizations in baseball already, and they're only getting better. They're, they're just going to be such a force in the NL West this year. And, you know, they're looking to compete with the Dodgers, who are just a super team in themselves. So that's going to be a great division to watch. You've already got two young superstars in Manny Machado, Tatis. Now you've got Snell. Now you've got Darvish. And you've got Song Kim, who can maybe play a little second base for you down the road. They had a huge week. Paul, what were your thoughts on the big week from the Padres? Well, maybe a lot of people don't know this because I made this pick last February or March uh, before when I was a producer of this show, before I ever started hosting this show. And I said that the, that the Padres were going to be my National League team, the team I was going to follow. Because I love Manny Machado. Same. I love Fernando Tatis. I think they have a, y- a lot of young talent. I just think that they're a fun team. So seeing them go and get Blake Snell, to get Blake Snell out of the American League East, Totally cool with, totally happy with. Then they go out and they trade for you, Darvish. Totally happy with that. Finished Cy Young, finished second in Cy Young voting in the National League in 2020, albeit small sample size, 20 games. You, I mean, I mean, 60 games. So it's to me, this is a big deal. To me, this is a big deal. Hayseong Kim signing with the team. Uh, it, a lot of people think it do, it doesn't make sense because you have Cronenworth playing second base, you have Tatis at shortstop, you have uh, Machado at third base, you need an outfielder. You need somebody to play first base in a couple years when Hosmer, when Hosmer goes. There's, who's to say Cronenworth can't handle first base? Uh, who's to say one of these guys can't go go and play the outfield? The bottom line is you want all the good players you can get in your organization. And a shortstop like Aseong Kim, versatility. You know who else was a shortstop coming up? Adam Jones became a gold glove center fielder. Another guy who was a shortstop coming up who plays shortstop now, but he played a little bit of center field, Trey Turner. These are versatile, athletic guys who can play in the field. Uh, They can hit. They can run. They can throw. If you can play shortstop in the big leagues, there's not many positions that you can't play. So I'm I'm totally fine with it. I think that they're now going to give the Dodgers a run for their money. Not sure if they even up there with them. Uh, we're going to talk to Stan, the fan Charles, about that here momentarily. See his thoughts on the whole thing. Um, but yeah, I, I think that it's great for the Padres. I think it's great for baseball. Because the last thing that you want is a team that 
has won the division before it even starts. And that's basically what we've had with the Dodgers the last seven or eight years. And the Padres were formidable this past year, but they really didn't stand a chance against the Dodgers. Now, you can't really say that. And then in 2022, they get that much better because they get Clevenger back. So then you're going to have a rotation that's going to have LeMay, Paddock, Clevenger, Snell, Darvish. Is there a top five rotation better than that in all of baseball? No way. Yeah. No way. The, the, it's, it's the best now. And as far as what the Padres have been doing, they've been in a rebuilding sort of phase for a while now. But that now you see what they're trying to do as far as moving over to the competing side of things. And, you know, but they're still using talent acquisition as one of their priorities. You know, Hayson Kim, maybe it's not a fit on the surface because you do have Tatis. But like Paul said, there's tons of versatility with these guys. They're very athletic. And you just want to acquire as much talent as possible in your organization. If you have an ability to get a guy as talented as Kim, you do it. If you can do it and he wants to sign there, you do it. I don't see any problem with that. I think you just acquire as much talent as possible. And this is a team who likes to make a lot of trades. They just traded for Blake Snell, Yu Darvish. If Hayson Kim performs in the minors, they could easily deal him two or three years down the road to, uh, to get another generational superstar. Yeah, but and I also don't think that they sign him with the intent of trading him. Probably um, not. No. Pro- you know, prob- probably not. However, if he, be- if you have, you know, Machado at third base and Tatis at third base, who are MVP candidates for the next five to ten years, then maybe you do trade a guy like him. Maybe somebody comes knocking who needs a shortstop, and they're willing to give up the farm for him. You know, the- I-, I think that you want to accrue as much talent as you can. Now, like I said, we're running pretty behind on today's show. So, real quick, we're going to talk about the fact that the Orioles, they're still in search of a starting shortstop. Um, two names came off the board. We mentioned Hayshaw and Kim came off the board. But another guy who I thought was ticketed for Baltimore, Adani Echevarria, signed with the Chiba, Chiba Lote Marines in the Nippon Professional Organization in Japan. One year is $970,000. Uh, those two guys off the board. Um, yeah, Echeverria, he, he just seemed destined to come to Baltimore at some point. Yeah. You know, great glove, not the best bat, but we thought for sure he'd be the guy they want to place behind that young pitching staff, and it made, it made a lot of sense. He probably didn't get any offer over here because not too many guys are going overseas if they're getting MLB offers. Exactly, exactly. So now we're looking at who's the next front runner for shortstop for the, uh, for the Baltimore Orioles, and I'm looking at Freddie Galvis, and I had no idea that Freddie Galvis was as good a defender as he is. His career fielding percentage at shortstop is 984. 984. That's higher than Adani Echeverria, and that's higher than Andrelton Simmons, and it's just a tick below Jose Iglesias, who's at 985. Now, this is a guy who's probably going to hit around 250 and with 15 homers and 30 doubles uh, for you in a given season. However, his career high from base percentage is just 309, and for his career, it's 291, and that's just simply not good. Are, are you okay with sacrificing on-base capabilities for solid defense and the guy who can, every now and again, especially at Camden Yards, put the ball out of the ballpark? Yeah, I am. I, I actually would really be happy if the Orioles were to sign Galvis. I think he's just reliable. He's not going to flash in any part of the game, but he's a guy who has a little bit of power. He can hit a little bit. He's just reliable, and he's not a guy who's you know, one of the best shortstops in the league. He's just kind of average. And I think that's what the Orioles need right now. And, and especially just need a guy to be back there with that 984 fielding percentage to, to help this young pitching staff. Because guys like Kramer and guys like Aiken, you know, teams are going to catch up to them and they're going to start getting the ball hit a little bit harder off of them. And they're going to need the help behind them. And I think you've got Real Ruiz, you've got 
uh, a lot of guys in this infield already that can pick it. Sanchez can pick it. Uh, you know, Trey Mancini's pretty good at first base. So completing this infield is going to be important. And you've got to help these young guys out. Well, yeah, and you're certainly not going to sign a free agent shortstop who's going to hit 373, right? Like Iglesias did last year. But if he can come in, <clears throat> if you can sign a guy like Freddie Galvis and have him come in and hit 250 with 15 to 20 homers, 30 doubles, okay, maybe he doesn't get on base as much as the next guy. But if he's going to play solid defense and has some pop, and you you have to worry about him potentially putting the ball out of the ballpark every at bat. That's a guy I'm okay with because no matter who is here, it's somebody who's just going to bridge the gap until we get to Gunnar Henderson or Jordan Westberg or Anthony Cervadeo. One of those guys. One of those guys is coming, and I ha- I'm inclined to believe that one of those three guys is going to stick at shortstop, and the other guy might stick at third base. So just give me somebody who's going to play good defense behind this young starting rotation and this young bullpen, and let's get off and running. You know, we are... Today we are 89 days from opening day. We're 45 days from spring training. This is the last month until November without baseball, guys. Last month without baseball until November. So we're excited. We're into the new year. Happy New Year to everybody. Let's get things off and running. Let's get the Orioles signing a shortstop, and let's let's get the ball rolling here. I'm ready to start this Major League season. And before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about a, a, another lazy blurb written about the Orioles in an article that should have given fans some excitement about their team during the offseason. This is an article by Andy McCullough for The Athletic. It's entitled, After 2020 to Forget, New Year's Resolutions for All 30 MLB Teams. That's something that's something you want to be excited about to read, right? You're like, oh, what's my team's New Year's resolution? It's a good idea for an article, it, for sure. it, it, It's a great idea. Uh, okay, and, and, and he goes in reverse order. He starts with the Pirates, who had the worst the worst record in baseball, top pick in the draft, and he goes all the way through the Dodgers, who have the last pick in the first round. So, uh, five teams in, we've reached the Baltimore Orioles. Pirates' resolution was to find a cornerstone to place beside Cabrian Hayes. Rangers' resolution set the stage for a splurge with as the team was expected to spend big to open Globe Life Park, but they didn't. Um, for the Tigers, figure out if Yimer Candelario is for real after the outfielder posted an 872 OPS in 2020. For the Red Sox, it's rediscover 2018 Andrew Benintendi. So for the Orioles, you would think it would be something like pave the way for Adley Rutschman or see if young starters can fortify rotation or can Ryan Mountcastle take the next step. Those would all make sense, right, Zach? Yeah, they would all make sense. And I, I think people just like to hate on the Orioles for whatever reason because they've kind of been the standard bad team for the last couple of years. You know, they had 47 wins. That wasn't great. But they, they, they can't be the standard anymore. The Orioles are getting better. The Pirates are a lot a lot worse right now and there's a lot of digging you can do on on the Pirates side I mean they traded Chris Ar- they traded for Chris Archer some of the best players that you know are now on the Tampa Bay Rays so they've made some horrible deals uh, you know the Pirates should definitely not be we shouldn't sugarcoat anything they do either well right the, the Pirates have had three winning seasons really since 1992 they exactly ha- they haven't done anything and they made the playoffs those three years and didn't even win a wild card game so there's not much that you can really say about the Pirates, yet they have a positive thing. For the Orioles, their resolution was continue to operate within the economic framework of the collective bargaining agreement. What? Which was a weird thing Elias did say. Right, but... It's kind of weird. But that's not even a resolution. No, it's not. And the blurb says, it's going great. 
No, that is unfair. We are picking on Baltimore general manager Mike Elias, who is mostly just saying the quiet part loud while explaining why the Orioles cut ties with Hanser Alberto, one of the few useful players from last season at the non-tender deadline. They did the same thing with Jonathan VR, one of the few useful players in 2019, a year before. They will continue to tank in this fashion until it either starts to bear fruit or fails. Money will be saved, and he writes, loses will accrue. Not losses, loses will accrue. No carping from the commentariat about the consequences of not Non-competition will change anything. Happy New Year. That's not a freaking resolution, man. Andy McCullough, what about that as a resolution? You are up there with Sam Miller, who had nothing to say about the Orioles back on July 20th, 2020, when he wrote his article about with his power rankings and says the Orioles might not even win 10 games. There's nobody on this team, nothing to play for. Do your damn job. Your job is to look at the team, do a little bit of research, and find something to write a resolution about. What do you do? You take another opportunity for an easy dig at a team who hasn't played very well over the last few years, but is up and coming. They have a lot of young talent on this team that people can get excited about, and you can't find anything to say about them other than, oh, this team is tanking, and it's bad for baseball, and blah, blah, freaking blah. I don't want to hear it anymore. There are five. There are four teams in Major League Baseball who had a worse record than the Orioles this year. Two straight years, they're not the worst team in baseball. Yet you find a way to make a dig on them. What about the Tigers? What about the Pirates? What about the Boston Red Sox, who had guys like Zach Goodman over here, my co-host chair, marching out to the mound every fifth day to pitch for them? What about those guys? What about those teams? You don't take a dig at them. You take a dig at the Orioles because you're freaking lazy and it's easy to do. And I'm tired of it. I'm simply tired of it. It's it's not even a resolution. You're just low-hanging fruit, man. S- saying few useful players, that's just simply untrue. If you watch any game of the Orioles, I mean, you could have watched really any game this season, and you would have seen there are more than a few useful players in the team. And Hanser Alberto, not even really one of them, to be perfectly honest with you. We, we've talked about that extensively. It's just a lazy article, and clearly, if you don't watch the games, you're not going to know much about the Orioles. Give them a real resolution. How about improve their winning percentage for the third straight year? That would work. Yeah, yeah. Improve your winning percentage for the third. Straight. That's a perfect example. Why aren't you writing this article, Zach? That's that's like why is that so damn difficult for people to do? But no, let's just again low hanging fruit. Let's take a dig. Sorry for getting outlandish here. It's just I don't understand how editors of these publications allow their writers to get away with this. It's so so lazy, and it, it, it's like. Come on, man. Do your job. Do There's not much going on right now, not much to write about. This is an easy thing for you. Do your job. Because right now you're not. Zach, now that I've sounded off, I'm going to let you sound off about something that you, uh, you have question marks about while I get stand on the line. Yeah, this week I want to talk a little bit about the Cubs because they traded you Darvish to the Padres. And it's kind of been rumored for a little while now that the Cubs may trade away some of their stars, but... I think we're just seeing kind of a lack of identity for the Cubs right now. They're a team that just won 34 games out of 60. They came in first place in the NL Central, and to be perfectly honest, they looked like a pretty good team. They're not one of the best teams in the MLB, but they're a pretty good team, and they're for sure capable of winning their division. Uh, Darvish, you know, he put up a 2.7 war, which is worth a lot for a pitcher in just 60 games. That's that's worth a ton. He has the highest K per nine of any starter ever. He's a really, really good player, and trading him away right now when he's your ace and you're a team who's trying to compete and and says you're trying to compete 
really just doesn't make sense to me. You've kind of been stuck in the middle of rebuilding and competing ever since that World Series win in 2016. And even with being stuck in the middle, you really haven't improved your farm system all that much. So you've got to take one side or the other, and you've got to say, okay, we're going to go for it this year. And trading away your your star ace and you Darvish, who finished second in Cy Young voting this year, isn't really going for it. And it's not really a money issue either. This is a big market team. They should have a lot of cash to work with. Well, yeah, this is a team that won the Central. They've been successful right. for the last five years. So what what, what are you doing? You know, and now you, you're you've traded you Darvish. Uh, the, John Lester ain't walking through that door again. I'm pretty sure. Right. Uh, and you have you you, you uh, non tendered Kyle Schwarber, yep. and so you got and you're talking about trading Chris Bryant. So you only have Anthony Rizzo now. Who are you? Who are the Cubs? And if, if Chris Bryant goes, <coughs> then they're not competing. I mean, that's the way I look at it, at least. Well, maybe that's the mode they're in. I'd like to get uh, Stan Charles' opinion. He's on the line with us now. Stan, how are you today? I'm good, guys. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Yeah, to interesting you. topic you got there. Uh, look, um, you know, the Cubs, it's clear that their ownership is not all in, you know, and that's uh, that that sped the... Uh, the uh, the uh, quick uh, you know leaving of uh, Theo Epstein. I mean, Epstein's not going to leave that job if he's wor- if he's working towards a full commitment to win championships. Um, his owner got cold feet when when the uh, when the benefit from winning didn't prove to be what it was supposed to be for them. You know. They're, they're, you know, I've always heard that the Ricketts are not really good, good people. You know, they're not, they're not looking out for the community. Well, yeah, it, it, it and you, you hit the nail on the head with, for me. Why would Theo Epstein leave? And this makes perfect sense if they, if ownership tells him, hey, look, we're not going to compete. We're looking to do something different here. Why would Theo Epstein want to sure. be part of another rebuild? He's going to move on, take the year off, and yeah, then go I to mean, a team that I wants mean, to compete. You know. Competing, you know, it's whose definition of competing. They're going to try and regroup as quickly as possible. But that was not what what Epstein was sold on, and he soured on working for the Ricketts family. Uh, and they were happy to get relieved of his whatever he was going to make this year, seven or eight million dollars. You know, uh, they were not. I think they, I think the Ricketts probably thought they were sold a bill of goods that this was automatically gonna, gonna work for four or five years in a row, and it didn't. And they soured on uh, Theo, and Theo soured on the whole situation. You yeah. Know? Now, in fairness, they've got a good guy in Hoyer there. Uh, he's a pretty sharp guy, and he might be able to turn this around. Um, you know, Zach, uh, who is Chris Bryant? You know, when you say if they get rid of Chris Bryant, they view Chris Bryant as like an $18 million, $20 million albatross around their neck because of the kind of player he's evolved into. So uh, I don't know that anybody's going to take Chris Bryant off their hands so readily. Yeah, and I just want to make a note on the Cubs. Their farm system is ranked 26 out of 30 right now. Yeah, so they do not have a good farm system. You're kind of stuck in the middle. And they didn't really get anyone huge for you, Darvish, either. They got a few nice prospects, but they didn't get anything game-changing for that farm system. It's still going to be so, ranked so, in the early The 20s. way it's been described to me is they got four kind of lottery tickets that have, you know, 
you look at exactly. the size and athleticism of them, and there is an upside. And if they can get one of them becomes a star, and one of them becomes kind of an everyday player, they'll feel that they they did well out of that, you know. But in this environment, it is not hard to find. I mean, it's not easy to find people that are going to take a, a, a contract like Darvish's off their hands, you know. So um, the, it's clear that their bigger move in this thing was getting out from under Darvish's contract than picking up guaranteed lock one player or two that were going to help. And uh, what made the thing, uh, you know, uh, palatable to them is palatable to them is uh, Zach Davies. Zach Davies is, he's not you Darvish, but he is a competitor and he's a guy that can win, you know, in a regular season, 13 or 14 games with a decent team. And the Cubs for all their flaws are still a fairly decent team. And they look around at the division they're in. And frankly, there's not a great team in that division. So they might be, they may be right there at 82, 84 wins that might, might get them to, to win that division or be close. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit here about you, Darvish's new team. They acquired Darvish. They acquired uh, Blake Snell. They signed Hayesong Kim uh, to be their, to, to come in, not to be their shortstop, but to play somewhere for them. Maybe, if not this year, then definitely next year because, I mean, let's be honest, the KBO is kind of like double-A baseball. Uh, but the Cubs are making moves. I mean, not the Cubs. The the Padres are making moves. They saw the Dodgers in their own division uh, lead the the majors in wins again, go win a World Series for the first time in thirty years. The Padres were close last year, but they couldn't get over that Dodgers hump. Does these do these moves put the Padres on the same level uh, of the Dodgers? And if not, what else do they need to do to get there? Well, first of all, they need uh, they need uh, it. it if Darvish pitches the way he did last year, and I feel pretty confident about that, they've got themselves an ace. Uh, you know, it's unfortunate they made a pretty significant trade to pick up Clevenger and will not have him at all this year because of Tommy John surgery. Blake Snell, um, you know, he had a he had a very strong postseason, but his regular season was not that phenomenal. Um, I'm I'm not sold on him as an as a long term outstanding ace type of pitcher. But look, they've got a lot of pieces in place. They now need to to shore up their bullpen. Liam Hendricks would be a great fit for them uh, because I can tell you the Dodgers are going to be probably in on him, and I know that guys for a fact because I'm in an I'm in an American League only. And I have Liam Hendricks at one dollar, so there's no question he's going to sign in the National League uh, with one of those two teams. <laughs> well, and you you mentioned uh, Blake Snell as you know his regular season wasn't that great, and what I think there, I mean, this is a guy who won a Cy Young in 2018, and what I think about Blake Snell, he was very outspoken last year during the shutdown, uh, in this past year during the shutdown, about how he didn't want to play unless he was getting paid his full salary. So yeah, I thought he acted like a jackass. I thought I thought he did too, and a lot of a lot of people thought that he did. And, and, and I'll tell you another thing, I, and I'm not saying he had to agree with his manager. Every time Kevin Cash took him out in a sort of controversial move, he left the mound and he was muttering to himself and had his 
the self-superior that he knows that he shouldn't have been taken out of the game. So he's going to get a chance to prove himself now with a uh, manager who's just making his way in the major leagues right now. Well, I'm I- not convinced. Look, I've been through the A.J. Prellers, a genius route before, uh, when about six years ago he did this kind of thing at the winter baseball meetings and made three or four moves and it was like, wow, this guy's unbelievable. And it never materialized for him. He's in a lot better shape now than he was back then. He did go back to the drawing board and they, they, uh, you know, suffered for five years, uh, from, from those mistakes. He seems to have done it more correctly this time. But I will tell you that the one, the one move that doesn't make any sense is the Kim move. It just does not make any sense to me at all. To acquire a player like that in the $30 million range, just to be able to say, well, the Dodgers do it because they've got so much depth. Um, that move just strikes me as uh, an, an overplay on my part, you know, on his part. You know, you're, you're not alone in that sentiment, Stan. My only argument for it is he's a shortstop who's athletic. They can generally play anywhere on the diamond if you need them yeah. to. Um, and, and they also, maybe they're not expecting him to be much of a contributor in 2021. Like we said, the KBO is like double-A baseball. Uh, a lot of players have a hard time making that leap, skipping triple-A. So maybe he starts the year in the minors. I don't know how the contract works. Uh, I yeah. don't, you know, I don't know if it's he has to be on the major league roster like Hunsu Kim had to be with I the I just Orioles. think for a team, look, and, and they probably have plenty of money in that market too, but uh, for a team that, you know, is spending the way that they're spending, I just find that as a sort of a stretch uh, type of move. You know, I would have rather locked in like Liam Hendricks for three years at $30 million or $27 million and know who my closer is going to be uh, rather than be talking about bringing Kirby Yates back who they could maybe they can get Kirby Yates on a one-year deal because he's coming back from an injury. But what do they do if Kirby Yates, uh, you know, blows a tire? Um, yeah, they should have been. They should be looking in the Trevor Rosenthal market. He was phenomenal for them. You know. Yeah. Uh, look, the Padres. They're certainly not done, I would imagine, this off season. We're sitting here just on January second. We're still forty-five days away from. Uh, from spring training, so it's it could be one of those things where they go out and they sign a couple of relievers because they know that they're that they that they still need somebody in that bullpen, which was kind of a downfall for the team last year, and yet they were still a very good baseball team. So it it, it could be one of those things where maybe they go out in the next couple of weeks and sign themselves a legitimate reliever, maybe a Liam Hendricks, and kind of put themselves over the top here to really compete with the Dodgers in the AL West. I mean NL yeah. West. I mean, what they really should do is is try and get Rosenthal at ten million a year for two years or yeah. something like that, with an option for the third year. That that that's what they should be doing. Stan, with know? with the Dodgers seeing all of this, how do you think they're going to respond? Are they going to go out and make a big trade, maybe a big free agent signing? Is there something on the horizon for the Dodgers? Do you think? Well, that's uh, that's that's an interesting point and i think the most notable thing they will do is a rosenthal or a hendricks wind up in los angeles i think uh, uh andrew freeman and his team out there are smart enough to know that they kind of they were able to get get by with a sleight of hand last year with kenley jansen 
who is sort of is on the periphery of being a really dominant relief pitcher anymore. You you can't go into next season with him as your closer. There's a chance he could get 12 or 15 saves, but you got to get somebody else out there. And I think, frankly, look, they do get David Price back, and who's to say that Price, having had a full year to maybe recover and work out, won't really snap back and be really a top-notch pitcher that fits in there well with uh, Bueller and uh, Kershaw. But, uh, you know, Gonsolin has certainly got a huge upside. Urias has got a huge upside. But it would not surprise me at all if they're the team that that maybe pays uh, Trevor Bauer $40 million a year in a two-year deal or something like that. Um, you know, that just blows open the market. Uh, they've been pushed and, uh, they, they have to respond a little bit because the Padres are right on their tail right now. No question about it. Yeah, certainly the Dodgers need to do something to kind of keep the Padres at bay because they're definitely coming, especially when they get Clevenger back in 2022. Now, yeah. with, uh, Kim signing with the, uh, with the Padres and the Danny Echevarria signing a one-year deal in the Nippon Professional Organization, uh, the Orioles have Kim probably wasn't much of a target for them, but a Danny Echevarria I have to think was one of their top targets this offseason. He's now off the board. You mentioned Ahire Adrianza on our last show a couple of weeks ago. It, it is Freddie Galvis now the front runner uh, as far as a free agent for the Orioles for shortstop. I would think if if they're not committed to you know, just simply going in house and and making it work between uh, Valeka and Martin and and Favre, uh, if they're not sort of really committed to that, and it's hard to imagine they would be committed to that. That Galvis is probably the name that would, you know, but I just think that Galvis is going to end up being a little out of what the Orioles budget. And that's why I think uh, Adrianza might be end up being a really nice fit that nobody's talking about. Yeah, they, they certainly need somebody to come in. The problem there is if you bring in Adrianza, it, it really depends on how long the season is, on if we have another truncated season. Um, but I, I feel like bringing a guy in like Adrianza, you're basically just saying, we're going to platoon at shortstop all season. And to me, that makes me nervous because you have a really young pitching staff, both the bullpen and the starting rotation. Your bullpen was a top unit last year. You want to have solid, solidifying defense behind them. And I, I, for me, having a platoon at shortstop just isn't the way to go if you want to make that happen. Yeah, if Adrianza came, let's, let's use 110 to 120 as the as the benchmark for, for my comments. Uh, you know, I'd see Adrianza as being an 80-game guy and uh, Martin being like a 30-game 30, 30 guy, you know, for this this coming season. I don't think it would be a strict platoon. Adrianza is a switch hitter, uh, and there's not a big split difference in his batting average. I think it's like 253 to 246 uh, one way or the other. Um Listen, he's not uh, he's not as good as uh, Jose Iglesias, uh, but uh, Jose Iglesias is not going to play shortstop this year for the Baltimore Orioles. And I just think Galvis is going to get three million dollars somewhere, and I don't think that's what the Orioles plan on doing this year 
with shortstop. Well, that's that's a good point that you make. It all matters. It all comes down to how much it's going to cost the Baltimore Orioles to sign a free agent shortstop. One thing's for sure. Whoever... And I think they, in fairness, and I'm not saying it's they're, they're putting all their chips in that basket. I think they want to see, you know, in fairness to them, uh, the the Iglesias thing was supposed to be a one year deal with the option, which we did end up picking up before we traded them, but. They, they thought when they signed Iglesias that Martin would play a full year at AAA or a good chunk of the season at AAA, and then they'd see maybe get him back up here to take a look at. And in fairness, that plan, they don't know because he got hurt. You know, it wasn't only that there weren't minor leagues, they couldn't get him back up because of his injury. So, uh, you know, that lost year of development for him, we're not sure what it's going to mean to him as a long-term piece with the ball club. But he was certainly, you know, the way they got him in a Rule 5 situation, he was certainly, I think, a decent enough player that I'd want to see more of after some more development, you know. Uh, that's the, the horrible thing about the Rule 5 thing is when you take somebody that's at double A, they're missing that key year of, uh, you know, triple A experience. And there aren't a lot of players you're going to pick up in the Rule 5 draft that are left off of other teams' lists that can make that jump in one year. And we did, never got to see what year two was going to be like. Well, I'm certainly inclined to still believe that they're going to start Richie Martin in Norfolk as their everyday shortstop. That's just where, where I think he ends up to start the year. And look, he's playing winter ball in the Puerto Rican Winter League right now, and you'd, you'd want him to go down there and kind of show out. And the last I checked, he's batting just two thirty six down there. And he's, he's got... He's batting what, three thirty six. Two thirty six. Not great. Yeah, just okay. 236 yep. in the Puerto Rican Winter League. He has two home runs. They came in the same game in a three-hit performance last week. Uh, you want to see more out of Richie Martin. Now, maybe this is this is definitely probably his um, his first taste of baseball since he broke his wrist at the uh, summer summer spring training or summer training. Right. So maybe he's a little rusty, and that's to be expected. But you would want him to show out a little more than he has now. One thing's for sure, whoever's playing shortstop for the Orioles in 2021 is going to have a new infield coach. Uh, the Orioles haven't made an official announcement yet, but it, it appears that they've signed Tony Mancellino to be their third base coach and new infield coach. This guy has a good bit of minor league managerial success, limited experience as a third base coach in the majors. He certainly has the endorsement of Ryan Flaherty. They were teammates together at Vanderbilt in college. Is this a good hire of Tony Manzalino to play to be the Orioles' third base coach and new infield instructor? I, I really can't tell you whether it's a good hire or not. You know, I mean, uh, obviously it's somebody that they think highly enough. Uh, you know, they clearly, that whole thing about the finances involved with the coaches, uh, it's just, it just sounded like a, a, a BS story, a cover uh, to to get Chris Hope in as the pitching coach yeah. and to make way for somebody else that they were more comfortable with and thought might be a better infield instructor or a better third base coach. They must not have liked the whole package with Flores. Yeah, and Flores had a, a tough year 
to say the least, uh, coaching third base. So while we were a little bit surprised that they said, you know, they were trying to work within the confines of their budget, and that's why Flores and um, and the pitching coach were gone now. Broke it, out. Broke, broke out. out. Thank you. I couldn't. I couldn't think of the name. That's um, all right. I appreciate it. Um, Wait until you get my age. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Flores again did not have a great year coaching third base, in my opinion. And so to see him gone, maybe not necessarily a big surprise when you look back at it with hindsight being twenty twenty. Uh, it seems to me that Manzalino is a guy who's destined to continue being promoted till he somehow makes it to a managerial level in the major leagues. To me, I, I've never seen him coach. I have to see what happens during the season, but I think that it's a pretty solid hire, and I'd like to believe that the Orioles brass knows what they're doing here. Yeah, um, you know, I, we, we've got to have some trust in uh, Mike Elias and uh, the, the process that he's, uh, you know, Ozzie Newsom used to always say, you know, have trust in the process. And, uh, you know, we won't, we won't know the full answer on whether Mike Elias is a, uh, an efficient, uh, you know, an efficient uh, executive in baseball or a genius in baseball, the jury's still out on that, but he's being true to the process of what he's trying to do. Yeah. You know, yeah. Which is to get as much inexpensive um, uh, talent into the organization uh, and try and uh, have it all coalesce around the same time to, to make a run with, the, with what he's building here. Yeah, it's look. I I I trust Mike Elias. A lot of people are uh, not thrilled with the way things have been going recently. But I look. I, I think that the on field product was much improved this past year. I think we have a ton of young. That the Orioles have a ton of young talent coming up. So I'm in a wait and see approach. But I have no reason not to trust the guy uh, as as far as you know the the decisions that he makes for right now. Now, Stan, before we let you go. I sent you a blurb from an article written by Andy McCullough last night where he was giving his 30 resolution, his New Year's resolutions for all 30 teams. And the one that he gave for the Orioles was not a resolution at all, but rather an opportunity to take a dig at the team. So rather than harp on that, what's your New Year's resolution for the Baltimore Orioles if you had to put, make one today? Wow. Uh <laughs> Um, what would my new year's resolution be? Um, just, just try and try and develop, uh, you know, just continue the development of the starting pitching, you know, just to accumulate as much talent as you can in that pitching pool, because I do have confidence that, you know, three, three years from now, we're going to have a pretty good team on the field, you know? It may be young and it may have a couple bumps, but it's going to be an athletically uh, talented group of players and the everyday, you know, that make fill out the lineup. But the pitchers uh, is what what really worries me, you know. Yeah, and the, the Orioles honestly haven't developed a homegrown ace since Mike Mussina, so you are completely right to worry about where this pitching could go. And we've heard we've heard so many times in the past the cavalry is coming with guys like Brian Mattis and Chris Tillman and um uh, Garrett Olson and all uh, and all sorts of guys like that and it just never really panned out. So Grayson Rodriguez, DL Hall, I think that these guys are an ilk above the rest, but it, it remains to be seen and pitching is 
been such a such a downfall of this organization. So I see the trepidation there. Stan, we gotta we gotta get going here. We gotta talk All to right. Craig Heist in a few minutes. Sorry but... for the technical problems. Uh, we'll talk to you next week. Okay, yeah. guys. Sounds and good. By the way, I'm back uh, Monday night with Ross Grimsley and Wednesday night with Gary Stein. Okay. All right. Sounds good. We're going to give you a plug here in just a moment. Thanks so much, and have a great weekend. All right. You too. That was Stan the Fan Charles joining us, as always, for his weekly segment, running a little bit late here today, but that's through no fault of our own. If you're missing your Stan the Fan fix, you can get it twice a week on Facebook Live at Facebook.com slash Sports. Every Monday night, Stan and former Orioles pitcher Ross Grimsley talk baseball, and every Wednesday night, Stan and Gary Stein talk to a newsmaker in the sports world. Both shows are back this week to kick off 2020. Join Stan and Ross Monday night at 8. Every Monday through Friday, Glenn Clark and Kyle Ottenheimer bring their pragmatic and irreverent approach to Baltimore sports via PressBox's Glenn Clark Radio. Watch the show at Facebook.com slash PressBoxSports. Listen at PressBoxOnline.com slash radio. You never know who might pop up on GCR. This week, the guys caught up with Matt Judon, Bradley Bozeman, Femi Adambaiho, and much more. Find those interviews today in the Glenn Clark Radio Week in Review feature at PressBoxOnline.com. That's Glenn Clark Radio at PressBoxOnline.com. All right, wonderful job, as always, Zach. On the line now, we have a fan of the show, a friend of the show, one of my personal favorites, Craig Heist. Craig, how you doing today, man? Happy New Year to you guys. Happy New Year to you, too. Did you have a good holiday, good Christmas, good New Year's? Yeah, slow, but yeah, it was good. Well, good, good. I, as as long as we come through it healthy, I think that's really all that matters. Well, in, in this day and age, that's about the only thing you hope for. Absolutely. Now, uh, the Nationals getting a little bit healthier with that roster right now. They went out and they acquired Josh Bell, sent Will Crow and Eddie Yeen um, over to the Pirates in exchange for Bell. What does this deal mean for the Nationals, and does it have an instant impact? Well, I think it has an instant impact in the sense that you're always looking or you have been looking for somebody to fill the void since Anthony Rendon left and went to the Anaheim Angels in free agency when he was allowed to, or when he became available as a free agent. I, I just think this gives the Nats another bat in the middle of the lineup that they can put in there behind uh, Trey Turner and Juan Soto hitting at the top and and uh, I would suspect at this point that Mike Rizzo isn't done yet. He'll probably try to add another piece, another bat, to go in the middle of the lineup as well as uh, the off season continues. But yeah, this is a positive. This is a positive uh, for, for the Nationals to the extent that they have him under team control for another this year coming up, and then next year he, he'll become a free agent. Uh, uh, after 23, he is arbitration eligible for the second time, uh, but that uh, that's supposed to be somewhere in the vicinity, I believe, of $6 million. So if that happens, I think the Nationals came out on the top end of this. Now, the other part of this is, uh, I think, to have to be considered is uh, what, what version of Josh Bell are you getting? Are you getting the 37 home run guy from uh, 2019? Or are you getting the eight home run guy in 60 games, or actually 57 total last year, uh, and and a guy who, like many players throughout baseball, uh, didn't perform up to their expectations, their abilities because of 
you know, the shortened season, the lack of, uh, uh, you know, the, the work that they got in in the second round at camp, uh, as obviously, you know, COVID-19 had an effect on everybody. So, I mean, I, but I do think this is a good acquisition. I, I think that, you know, because of the, because of the contract, the way it's structured, because of the potential to return to 2019 form, I think this is a fairly decent acquisition for the Nationals. And again, playing first base, it, it, you know, that that obviously spurs the question: what what happens with Ryan Zimmerman? Well, at this point, I think Ryan is uh, going to come back, and I think it's going to be a year contract, very similar to the one he had last year. Uh, he says he wants to play, uh, and and I, and I think that the Nationals and Ryan will certainly work something out. Well, and th- that's the question I have about Ryan Zimmerman. Now, it's rumored that there's no, there's not going to be a universal DH uh, in 2021. Uh, Ryan Zimmerman. Now, look, if there was a DH, well, well, now wait a minute. Have they decided that yet officially? Because I mean, we we were we were on a conference call with Mike Rizzo uh, this past week, and he said he's putting this club together as a National League club. Uh, and 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 he'll adjust accordingly going down. So I don't think anything has officially been 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 decided on that. But I mean, obviously, if there's a universal DH, then I think the Nationals then then that makes all all the more sense, you know, for the Nationals. If there's not, well, you know, then then they're going to have to be very creative with the way they use Bell and 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 how they use Zimmerman and how many games. Hey, Craig, it's that good. How you doing? Um, so. Uh, Dan Perry wrote an article for CBS Sports a few weeks ago talking about the DH, and it says they're not currently planning on having it in the National League. So that's the latest uh, news on that, but there hasn't really been too much more on it lately. But as far as we know, there will not be a National League DH. Well, and, and that's what we had heard from the very beginning, that in, in 2021 they probably wouldn't, but I know that nothing was etched in stone in that. The last I had read... And in in the last couple of days, unless something else changed, <laughs> I don't know. We're we've all been busy with the holidays. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's certainly not having the universal DH hurts Ryan Zimmerman because if he could DH every game, you're looking at a guy who could play 120 plus games if he just has to hit. Uh, and the Nationals would have a pretty formidable because I think the guy can still hit. I think he can still put the bat on the ball and, and hit it out of the ballpark when he when he has to. Uh, if he could DH, that's a coup for the. Uh, for the for the Nationals, so right now they're probably hoping against hope to have that uni- that universal DH. Now getting back to Josh Bell, and when I, when I say that Juan Soto was a machine last year, despite a lack mm-hmm. of protection in the lineup, won a nationally batting title, um, was just a difference maker when when he was healthy and on the field. How much better can Juan Soto be with Josh Bell protecting him, and how much better can Josh Bell be? Uh, with Juan with being protected by Juan Soto, well, I think it kind of works hand in hand, if you will. Uh, a lot of it depends on how Dave Martinez wants to wants to finagle his lineup, but certainly, uh, I think one can benefit the other, and vice versa. I mean, you know, the, the, the one thing about Juan Soto now at age twenty one is uh, just his maturity at the plate. I mean, and 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 nothing seems to phase the kid. He doesn't swing at bad pitches very often, if at all. And I, I think, you know, as he continues to get more experience, that part of his game 
will be even more consistent than what it is now. And uh, he's a force. He, as you said, he won the batting title, albeit 60 games last year, and actually less than that because he had missed a couple of games early part of the year because of the COVID is- issues uh, that he had. But, uh, you know, to me, I mean, he's a guy, he's a guy you want there and he's a guy you want Josh Bell hitting next to him. So, I mean, from that standpoint, I think, I think it's going to go hand in hand. I think both of them are going to be benefit from each other. Well, and, and keep in mind, and keep in mind too, that Bell's the switch hitter. So, uh, you know, that, that, that is something else to be considered and, and what other managers have to, uh, have to account for is the fact that he can hit from both sides of the plate. You mentioned that you don't think the Nationals are done. Now, the the Cubs are trying to unload Chris Bryant. Could Chris Bryant be a legitimate option for the Nationals? Do you see them going out and making a potential trade to acquire him to play third base? Or are they still looking to Carter Keboom to be that guy? Well, at this point, I think they're still looking at Carter Keyboom. The, the price tag in a trade uh, for Bryant probably is a little bit too rich at this point, and that's why uh, I'm hearing more and more that I don't think the Nationals are going to do that and, and go in that direction. Although, certainly having him at third base, having him as, as, as that other bat would certainly help them. Uh, you know, But to, to me... I still think Mike Rizzo is going to build this team uh, for, for, for 2021 the same way he's built a lot of his teams, and that's by, you know, counting on and making sure you have as much pitching as you possibly can. Yeah, and, and speaking of building the lineup, they added a <laughs> catcher on a minor league deal on the uh, on December 21st, Wellington Castillo, former Oriole, uh, to a 950000 minor league deal. What kind of profile does Wellington Castillo bring to this club, and does he have a chance to make the major league roster? Well, I think he'll be given every shot in spring training. But uh, you know, again, another piece that I think they like, and you know, you know, they they certainly wouldn't have gone out and done that if they didn't have some kind of a plan for him. Uh, you know, from that standpoint, though, uh, we'll, you know, we'll see going down the stretch and see. Who else gets added to the roster? Who else they sign? And you know, you know, how much of the minor league system uh, is available for Mike Rizzo to be able to, uh, you know, to be able to use in trades going forward to see to, to see how he can strengthen this ball club. Uh, from from my my standpoint, you know, the the, the two guys that were were traded uh, to get Josh Bell here. I mean. We certainly saw Crow a couple of different times uh, at the big league level, and uh, you know, you know, he obviously, you know, there was nothing that really stood out that would make you think that this wasn't a bad deal. You know, by using a couple of your minor league pieces to to bring in a guy the quality of Josh Bell. So, you know, again, going forward with Castillo, we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, just you know how how it how it shakes down. I mean. A lot of this is just kind of, you know, speculation at this point. But uh, to me, and I know this, I've been around Mike Rizzo as long as I have. He wouldn't have made this if, you know, he didn't think there was some kind of a, a way he could help the ball club. Yeah, well, this team is, and always has been really over the last several years when they've been competitive, 
been built around starting pitching. You mentioned that just a few minutes ago. You have yeah. a, a really, really solid st- top three in Steven Strasburg, Max Scherzer, Patrick Corbin. Joe Ross is coming back after opting out in 2020. What are his chances at the rotation? Did Eric Fetty do enough to warrant a spot heading into spring training? Or does this team well, have any... Well, I think any... both of them probably will. I mean, he opted out Ross because of the COVID issue, same way uh, Ryan Zimmerman decided not to play uh, in 2020 because of that and the, and, and the length of the season. Uh, I, I, You know, you look at those top three guys, and I thought, I thought Joe really kind of took a step forward uh, in the postseason in, in 2019. Uh, and I think he has every shot to uh, uh, being a part of this rotation. But again, same thing with Eric Fetty. But again, it depends on who they go out and they acquire and who there, there are some stronger arms uh, in the minor league system. So again, it depends on who steps to the forefront but I would say those two guys for four and five at this point are are pretty good bets in terms of competition going into camp. Well, look, th- this team is 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 you know now a full season removed from well a full truncated season removed from a world championship, and yep. they're gonna have to they're gonna have to keep up. Quite frankly, that National League East isn't getting any easier. There there is a legitimate argument to be made for every team top to bottom in that division to compete and potentially make the I mean the Marlins made the playoffs this past season uh, then you look out in the National League West and you have the Dodgers you have a, form, a formidable team in the Padres so even if they get out of the the NL East and make it to playing another team to with a chance to go to the World Series they have to contend with those guys well if, they came out <coughs> pardon me they came out uh, of a, a wild card situation in 2019 uh, to run through everybody and go win a World Series. That's so, true. So again, you know, with the with the way it's structured, you know, a lot of this has to do with who gets out at the right time. Uh, and 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 I would, I would even going back to last year, say that we're probably playing a game seven or likely a game seven if uh, if the the Rays. You know, if uh, they don't take Blake Snell out of that or uh, uh, Snell out of that game uh, in the sixth inning, agreed. So, I I think I would have loved to have seen what would have happened had they let him in there. You know, but Kevin Cash saw it to to be a different scenario. He went with the gut. He went with the analytics, and uh, I think in that case, it turned out to bite him in the butt. Yeah, I, I mean, I think everybody was second-guessing and questioning. I know I certainly, as soon as Snell came out of the game, I was on social media questioning the move myself. Now, with the, we were talking about the rotation a little bit. There are still guys out there. Uh, you have Cole Hamill still out there, Corey Kluber, who's trying to do a showcase for teams to prove that he's healthy and can pitch. Uh, you have Colin McHugh, who's had success for the Astros in the past and out of the bullpen for the Red Sox. Are any of these guys legitimate uh Options for the Nationals to go out and fill out the rest they're, of that rotation. Yeah, well, to me, they're legitimate options. All of them. The only thing is, what is it going to? What is the price tag going to be going forward uh, in, in terms of acquiring one of them? And and it's got to be it's got to be workable within the Nationals framework uh, for it to be a deal that Mike Rizzo would pull the trigger on. Uh, obviously, you'd like to have. <laughs> you'd like to have at least two of those guys. Oh, absolutely. You know, 
for your for your rotation. But uh, again, it, it all depends on what the price tag is. And, and you got to remember, I, I don't think it's just the Nationals. I think it's every team in Major League Baseball because of what happened last year, because of the no fans in the stands and the financial hit that a lot of these teams took, or almost every team took. You know, you got to be. It's going to be very interesting to see what kind of money gets what's what kind of money gets spent and how it fits into a team's uh, financial situation. But uh, yeah, any of those guys would 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 work. <laughs> well, and the reason I bring them up is Corey Kluber's had a, a down season followed by an injury plague season. Uh, Cole Hamels made one start where he went three innings against the Baltimore Orioles last year for the Braves, uh, and the, they're both kind of on the back nine of their careers right now. You, I, I can't imagine given where their careers are right now, they could demand a ton of money. And we all know the learners have deep pockets as it is. I just really feel like if the Nationals want to get over the hump and get back to being that World Series contender, these are guys that they have to look at that could fill out the back end of their rotation. Now, the Nationals also, they certainly need an outfielder after the departure of Adam Eaton. Are they in on Michael Brantley or Marcelo Suna? Well, they could be in on both of them, but I think the one guy, too, that they're going to look at very closely, especially in spring training, because of the way he played last year, and especially the last 20 games of last year, is Andrew Stevenson. I mean, I, I, I think he'll certainly, certainly he, he fits this ball club and, and brings his speed. I think he's a very good defensive outfielder. The only problem is, can he, can, can he hit consistently up here? And... I, you know, I'm looking at what he did the last part of last year, and uh, all of a sudden, somebody you wouldn't think would have been in the mix all of a sudden becomes in the mix. So, again, a lot of it depends on what he does to build off of what he did last year. But I, I think Andrew Stevenson is a name you could probably say, hey, wait a minute, maybe he has a shot. And But, again, you won't know that until – the middle of February and in, in, into March when spring training rolls around. And that's, again, if we get this thing going on time, and you certainly hope you do. Yeah, and the White Sox this year, speaking of the bullpen, uh, the White Sox brought up Garrett Crochet. He was their first-round pick in 2020, and the Nationals selected Cade Cavalli. Is there a chance that Cade Cavalli could make his Major League debut and help out the Nationals in their bullpen this year? Well, if that happens, I think it would be a feather in their cap, uh, you know the the I, I I will say this. You mentioned Adam Eaton. You know, uh, you know not being there anymore. I had a chance to. I had Adam on my show a couple of weeks ago uh, uh, down in D.C. on 106.7, and he he was uh, you know injury related. It was, this was injury related at the end of last year, and and that's one of the reasons why Juan Soto got moved over to right field was the fact that, you know, Adam got hurt and couldn't play the last, you know, 10 games of the year. Uh, but landing in Chicago, where he was before he came to D.C., and, you know, I talked to him a little bit about, you know, real, reuniting, uh, if you will, with Lucas Giolito, the guy he was traded for. And he said uh, he said he was looking forward to that and how ironic it was uh, that, that that happened to him. And, you know, say what you want. He went through two, two injury-plagued years here, obviously with the leg issues and the, and the uh, Achilles, and worked his way back and stayed pretty much healthy in 19. I think he's one of the reasons why the Nationals were able to go on and, and, and win the World Series, uh, a lot of, you know, because of his contributions. But 
you know, I, I'm going to miss that guy because, you know, I, I said to him, I said, you know, you played in that game at Camden Yards against the Orioles where we were going through the Freddie Gray incident in right. Baltimore with no fans in the stands that day. And I said, who would have ever thought if you played in that game that you'd be going through a whole season, albeit 60 games, of the same situation, <laughs> you know? Because at the time, I had interviewed him. He said, I never want to play a game like that again. And then he winds up playing a whole season like that. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a crazy circumstance that worked out that way. Um, and, I, and I've always been an Adam Eaton fan. I think that when he's healthy, he's as good as anybody out there, and he's a good spark plug at the top of a lineup. And I think that he proved that uh, in his national tenure, even if it was injury-plagued. Now, Craig, before we let you go, Andy McCullough wrote an article um, uh, for The Athletic about the New Year's resolutions for all 30 Major League teams. For the Nationals, it was don't let opponents put the ball in play because the Nationals certainly struggled mightily on defense last year. Um, I'm sorry, because what? uh, Because the Nationals struggled mightily defensively last year. Um, (laughs) So my question for you, what would your New Year's resolution be for the Washington Nationals in 2021? Well, pitching and defense, that's what wins you titles, I think, in the end. And I thought we saw that in 19 with this team. Defensively, I thought they were real good in 19. A lot of that, you know, they they lost Rendon, obviously. They got to find somebody to – but it was kind of across the board. I mean, you know, Castro got hurt, you know, and and didn't, you know, finish that out. And – they lost a few different pieces. This team isn't as bad defensively as they showed last year through 60 games. I, I just failed to, you know, I, I just won't acknowledge that as being a real issue. But certainly when they get to camp, that's going to be the fundamental thing again for Dave Martinez to stress is, you know, we got to get back to playing good defense. And, you know, it's amazing. It's amazing how good your starting pitching is, no matter who the names are. If you're playing good defense behind yep. them, and I think one goes hand in hand, and if that's the thing that that to me is going to be the to me the one thing that I think they have to do better in 21 than they certainly did last year in a 60 game season. Well, certainly, if you want to succeed and you want to help your pitchers out, you have to catch the baseball. That's 100 percent true. Craig, always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for joining the program today. Have a happy new year. All right. Same to you guys. Take right. care. Take care. That was Craig Heist uh, joining in the program. Craig used to co-host the show pretty frequently with Stan. It's always nice to get him uh, back on the program. He's just just a good guy, really great personality, very outgoing. So glad to have uh, Craig on to talk about the Nationals in the Chesapeake Employers Insurance Studio. If you're just joining the program, we are audio only today. Showed up today and our MacBook was not here. Uh, so we can't do on camera, we can't do Facebook, no ads, no... Um, no Facebook um, sponsors. So uh, thanks for sticking with us as we soldier on here today. And hopefully we'll be back in the studio next week and be live on Facebook so you can see our beautiful faces smiling back at you. Uh, until then, I just want to remind you that if you have tested positive in the last six days or have a household member or coworker who has, please go to covidplasmatrial.org. Again, covidplasmatrial.org. And that's brought to you by Johns Hopkins University. And I also just want to remind you that the bat around is brought to you by Chesapeake Employers Insurance, your workers compensation insurance specialist and as always we are in the chesapeake employers insurance studio 
Since masks are a part of our live now, lives now and probably won't be for a while, we might as well wear masks that celebrate our hometown and the teams and athletes we love. Pressbox is offering three different types of home team masks, including a purple and orange Maryland flag pattern 20-inch neck gaiter, plus a celebrate April. Celebrate 8, Purple Neck Gator, honoring the MVP quarterback, and an over-the-ear two-ply Maryland flag mask featuring a faded version of the iconic state flag. These are decorative masks, not CDC-approved, but they're perfect for hanging out and watching games this fall while supporting your teams and being respectful, respectful of those around you. Get your masks right now at PressBoxOnline.com masks. That's PressBoxOnline.com masks to get yours now. All right, this would normally be where we would take a break and then come back and start our Orioles banter segment. But uh, instead, because we don't have the ability to take a break right now, we're just going to go ahead and um, start the Orioles banter. Uh, So this is the five best Orioles seasons that didn't result in a World Series appearance. Now, before Zach and I get started here, let me preface this by saying that this is an opinion segment. My list is my preference. It's not absolute fact. For example, from 1961 to 1983, the Orioles won 90-plus games 17 times. They made the playoffs eight times in the non-wild card era. Certainly, any number of those teams would be deserving of this list. So, And actually, none of the teams on that list are on my list. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to start first here. My number five best Orioles season that didn't result in a World Series appearance is 1992. The team went 89-73. and 73. The Orioles were coming off a 1991 season that saw Cal Ripken win his second AL MVP, the All-Star Game MVP, the Home Run Derby, and he registered a war of 11 for the highest mark ever by a shortstop. Unfortunately, Cal was the only thing that went right in 91. The Orioles finished 67-95, and 6th place out of a 7-team AL East, 24 games out of 1st place. 1992 was a breath of fresh air as the Orioles moved out of Memorial Stadium and into the ballpark that forever changed baseball as Oriole Park at Camden Yards opened its doors. The team won 89 games in 92, the first of five winning seasons in six years for Baltimore that would culminate in back-to-back ALCS appearances in 96 and 97. This was the coming-out party for future Orioles stars Mike Mussina, Brady Anderson, Mike Devereaux, and Chris Hoyles as the Orioles burst onto the scene in 1992 and left their mark on Baseball, Musino won 18 games with a sterling 2.54 ERA. Anderson hit 21 homers, stole 53 bases. Mike Devereaux hit 24 homers, drove in 110. Chris Hoyles in 96 games hit 20 home runs and hit about 270. Coming out party for that mid-90s team that really, really brought baseball back to life in Baltimore. Zach, what's your fifth best season? I do not have the 1992 as my fifth. I have the 2012 Orioles with a 93-69 and 69 record. A little bit after Dan Duquette and Buck Showalter took over, they took the Orioles to the playoffs for the first time in 15 years. Not a team anybody really gave a chance. Nobody thought they were going to make a wild card appearance, but they did. Uh, they, they had some really great young talent at that point. Matt Wieters put up a 4.1 war. Chris Davis hit 270, 33 home runs. Adam Jones, 839 OPS. Jim Johnson, you know, maybe a little bit of a frustrating season, as we mentioned before, but 51 saves. The Orioles, unfortunately, were ended in their ended their season with a ALDS loss 3-2 to the New York Yankees. But Nate hit the foul pole, and there's a lot of things that could have gone differently in there. But I, I had to throw that in there. Nate hit the foul pole. Yeah, that's a plug for your it, podcast. It, yeah, it's, it's a plug. But it's it's a classic moment that really could have changed things. CC Sabathia, uh, game number two of that ALDS. 
But an incredible season because everyone counted this team out. No one believed they could do it. But they had the young talent. You know, Manny Machado came along later in that season, and they made a documentary about it that's really good as well. Yeah, I, I got the documentary at Orioles Fan Fest that year. I've probably watched that documentary about 178 times. So, um, spoiler alert, I also have that team on my list. I'll get to that eventually, but they're not number four for me. Number four is 1989, the Why Not Orioles, 87-75. and 75. The Orioles were coming off an absolutely horrendous 1988 campaign that began with 21 consecutive losses and ended with a 54-108 record, the worst record in the history of the franchise at the time, a record that would stand for 30 years until the debacle that was the 2018 Orioles came into existence. 1989 truly came out of left field, no pun intended, and that spurred the Why Not Orioles. If you look at the stats, nothing stands out aside from Mickey Tettleton, but the team pitched to an even four ERA and found themselves one game back entering the final series of the year, a three-game set with first place Toronto. Unfortunately, there's no wild card that year, and the team lost the first two games, each by one run, including a walk-off loss in game two, before winning the third game, and they finished two games out of the playoffs. But it certainly was a magical season for a team that wasn't expected to compete at all, let alone enter the season's final series a game out of first place. I like that one a lot. I should have probably had that one on my list. I mean, that's a classic season. Why not? They still play the song sometimes today at Oriole Park. It's great. Uh, but at number four, I have the 1977 Orioles. They went 97 and 64 under the great Earl Weaver. And a fun fact about them, they forfeited their September 15th games. That's why there wasn't 162 games played, only 161. But Palmer, a 20-game winner. Rudy May, a starter, kind of a forgotten name. He was able to win 18 games. Uh, Singleton almost wins MVP. We talked about that a couple shows ago. Uh, Eddie Murray put up an 803 OPS. Tippy Martinez, 141 OPS plus. So a formidable lineup. And of course, the end of Brooks, Ro- Brooks Robinson's career. He retired after that year after only hitting in the 140s. So, you know, you know, his his storybook career comes to an end, but an absolutely incredible season for the Orioles, 97 and 64 in 1997. 1977. 77, sorry. Um, let's see. Rather than risk injury to one of his players, manager Earl Weaver of the Baltimore Orioles forfeited a game to the Toronto Blue Jays on that September 15th. They were given 15 minutes by the umpire to get their players back on the field. Exactly. Yeah, I, I didn't even know that. That's I, I consider myself an Orioles historian of sorts, and I had no idea that they ever forfeited a game. Um, my number three season of all time that didn't result in a World Series appearance, 2012. Zach mentioned this as his fifth best. Orioles went 93-69. and 69. They were second in the AL East. They won the wild card game versus Texas, and they lost the ALDS 3-2 to two to the New York Yankees. The Buck Showalter-led Orioles were coming off a 69-93 and 93 season and fourth straight Last place finish in the AL East. They had traded away their best starter in Jeremy Guthrie in the offseason after trading away their best reliever in Koji Urahara at the 2011 deadline. None of that mattered. Guthrie's replacement, Jason Hamill, pitched to a 3.43 ERA and took a no-hitter into the eighth inning of his very first Orioles start for a win in... a win for a three-game opening series sweep of the Minnesota Twins on Easter Sunday. The, line, the lineup boasted 20 homer seasons from Matt Wieters, J.J. Hardy, and Mark Reynolds, and 30 homer seasons from Adam Jones and Chris Davis. Rookie Wei-Yin Chen won 12 games with a 4.02 ERA, while Chris Tillman and Miguel Gonzalez each won nine games. Tillman with a 2.93 ERA, Gonzalez with a 3.25 ERA. The bullpen, phenomenal. That year, pitched to a three ERA, and the Orioles entered September neck and neck with the Yankees in the division after 20-year-old Manny Machado debuted in August to help get the Orioles over the hump. 
Only fitting that Manny got the walk-off hit in the 14th inning on my birthday for the Orioles' 81st win, securing their first non-losing season since 1997. I've said it many times, it took 14 innings to end 14 years of losing that day. It was a season of too many incredible moments to count, including a wild-card win over the defending AL, AL champion Texas Rangers, a moment that brought actual tears to my eyes. Uh... The Cal Ripken statue game where the Orioles gave up five Incredible. runs, gave up five runs in the uh, in the top of the eighth inning, then scored uh, then scored four runs on three home runs in the bottom of the eighth inning to win that game ten to six. Probably the best moment of the year. Just a phenomenal run for the Orioles in 2012, ending a streak of no lose, no winning season since 1997. It's always going to stand out in my heart for baseball. Well, the reason I said 1997 before is because I'm reading the top part of my list here because I do have 1997 Orioles at number three in 98 and 64 record. They had three 15 plus game winners, including Mike Messina, who led the team in WAR. Alomar puts up a 3.33 average, 8.90 OPS. You know, one of the great years he had in Baltimore. Really underappreciated as well. Uh, Anderson put up a 128 OPS plus. Palmero mashed 38 bombs. Randy Myers 47 saves. Unfortunately, lost in the ALCS to the Cleveland Indians. But another year where you win 98 games and just really missed, you know, going to a World Series, it would have been their first win since 1983. So they just missed it. And I know you've talked about that being one of your favorite seasons of all time. So maybe you have that on your list, but truly an incredible season in the late 90s. Yeah, I'm not sure if I have that on my list or not. Uh, No spoilers here. Uh, However, my number two season, 2014. 96-66, 96-66, and 66, first place AL East. They lost the ALCS to a red-hot Kansas City Royals team, four games to none. The 2013 Orioles won 85 games and failed to reach the playoffs. Enter Nelson Cruz. As the Orioles' DH hit 40 home runs to lead the majors, a feat accomplished by an Oriole for four straight seasons from 2013 to 2016. Chris Davis twice, Nelson Cruz that season, and Mark Trumbo in 2016. The offense was good as they led the league in home runs, but it was the pitching that led the way. Five of the Orioles' six starters had ERAs below four. Miguel Gonzalez, Chris Tillman, Wade and Chen, and Bud Norris all won 10 or more games. Darren O'Day and Zach Britton, the new closer, had ERAs of 170 and 167, respectively. The team pitched to a 3-4-3 ERA, including a 361 mark and 68 wins by the rotation, and a 310 mark and 53 saves by the bullpen. The season ended prematurely, as I mentioned, as the Orioles were ousted from the playoffs by that red-hot uh, Royal team, in part due to Chris Davis, Manny Machado, and Matt Wieters all missing the playoffs. This was the best season in 17 years for Baltimore uh, and the best shot at a World Series since 1997, uh, really since 1983 when they won their last World Series. What do you have at number two? I couldn't have said it better myself. I also have the 2014 Orioles. Every, I'm not going to rehash what you just said, but I, I everything I agree with completely. And the year of the Delman double, by the way, we should mention against the Tigers in that oh, game, too. Oh, absolutely. And you can't not mention it for 2014, but unfortunately got swept by the Royals. Like you said, they were red hot. It was almost impossible to, to win that series, but you know it would have been great to get in the World Series there. And I don't know if they would have won, but... It it would it was really an exciting year, and again, it's it's a year where I feel that no one really expected them to make this run. Nobody really counted the Orioles in. Everyone always counts the Orioles out. That's the way it's always been. That's why we have articles that always get digs at them now. But you know, Steve Pierce mashed 21 homers off the bench in only 102 games, 930 OPS. You know, Chris Tillman was starting to become that ace at the front of the the rotation for you know many years to come after that. So. You know, Nelson Cruz, Delman uh, Delman Young, these late 
I believe, February signings that the Orioles made. Yeah. So really a special season and my personal favorite season that I've seen in my lifetime. Well, certainly that team was – they were so good. They, they were. It, it was you watched, the, you watched the 2014 Baltimore Orioles in the second half of that season – and you knew they were going to win every night. They they just they had that swagger. They just they went out there every night. I remember they were playing a good Cardinals team uh, in August, and the Cardinals just had no shot. Yep. The, the Orioles were so head and shoulders above that team. I remember watching that game, and that's when I really realized this is the best team in baseball. The Baltimore Orioles were the best team in baseball in 2014, and it the fact that they they I think that they would have gone to the World Series if they played any team other than the Kansas City Royals in the ALCS. They were just so damn hot. But, you know, the, the fact that you had Ryan Flaherty playing third base every game in the ALCS, you had Steve Pierce, who uh, you could make an argument was the heart and soul of that team in 2014. He was your first baseman, and you had Nick Hundley catching every day. Uh, the, the, it, it just, the, the missing Chris Davis, missing Manny Machado, and missing Matt Wieters was probably the difference in that team, not, in that team being a World Series team because those are three not three gold glove players but three offensive forces that the Orioles were missing in that 2014 season yeah Machado almost won MVP in 2015 he had an incredible season he only played 82 games in 2014 if he plays 160 162 who knows how many more wins the Orioles could get it could be 102 105 I mean he's such a formidable piece of that lineup back then Manny Machado was coming off the 2013 season where he won the Platinum platinum uh, Glove Award over at third base for the best fielder in all of Major League Baseball. He hit 50 doubles. The follow- In 2015, he, he hit uh, the first of three straight 30-plus homer seasons for the Orioles. Manny Machado, was the, you, he could have been an MVP caliber player in 2014 had he been healthy enough, had he not had the debilitating knee injury uh, that caused him to miss most of 2014. Um I, I, I shudder to think about what that team could have been had they had a healthy Matt Wieters who had Tommy Johnsery's but was but was hitting over three hundred when he went down for the year and had they had Manny Machado. Davis hit one ninety six that year, but had twenty six homers, but that was still a guy that you had to that was sandwiched in between two seasons where he led the majors in home runs. So Chris Davis still somebody that you had to reckon with in the lineup. Now my number one season that did not lead to a World Series appearance, nineteen ninety seven. 98 and 64, first place in the American League East, lost the ALCS to Cleveland 4 to 2. All you really need to know about this team is wire to wire. They were in first place after the first game of the season and never dropped out of first for the entire season. Yours came in 1997, fresh off an ALCS appearance in 1996. The 96 team set a then MLB record with 257 home runs and scored 949 runs. The pitching ha- staff, however, didn't feature a single starter with an ERA below 481, and the team finished the season with a 514 ERA. Enter Jimmy Key, Scott Kamenicki, and the four-man rotation in 1997. All four starters had ERAs of 401 or below and won at least 10 games, including 16 each by Scott Erickson and Jimmy Key and 15 by Mike Mussina. Even Arthur Rhodes won 10 games out of the bullpen. The team had a, one thir- had a plus 131 run differential and would have won 100 games for the first time since 1980 had it not been for a 13-16 and 16 September record. The Orioles were by far and away the best team in baseball in 1997, but wasted two incredible starts by Mike Mussina in the ALCS where he allowed one earned run with 25 strikeouts and 15 innings pitched. The Orioles lost those games 2-1 to one and 1-0 and lost the series 4-2. to two. 
It was the closest a team has been to a World Series since 1983. They really should have won a World Series in 1997, and that is arguably the greatest heart- baseball heartbreak in my life that they didn't. Yeah, fair enough. I already had that on my list, but I have the 1980 Orioles, who were 100-game winners at number one. Uh, they didn't come in first place in the division, which is incredible. But anytime a team wins 100 games and doesn't make the World Series, I think that's definitely worth a mention. Uh, this was toward the end of Earl Weaver's career, uh, so that's kind of notable right there. But Bumber and Singleton, they absolutely controlled the outfield that year. They batted a combined 311, 33 homers. Um, Eddie, Steady Eddie, you know, 32 homers, 116 RBIs. Scott McGregor. Gregor and Stone won 20-plus games. Just an incredible season all over the place from these guys. Um, 32 more combined from Flanagan and Palmer. It was an unbelievable year. Al Bumbry put up a 6.1 war. That just doesn't really happen that often. That is superstar status for a guy who really did not have a superstar career. But up and down this lineup, they had guys that just made an impact. Rick Dempsey, obviously, hit 262 that year, was starting catcher. Just an, a really incredible year and probably should have made the World Series, but e- didn't even really win their division. It's just incredible. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. That 1980 team won 100 games and didn't even make the playoffs. Right, exactly. It, 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 you look back at like the 1993 um, NL East race, which for some reason the Giants were in the NL East in 1993. The Braves won 103 games, the Giants won 102, and the Giants missed the playoffs. This is all before the wild card. Um, yep. 1980s season certainly deserving of being on that list. Um, honorable mention here, 1994, 63 and 49. We've seen the McDonald combined for 30 wins. Lee Smith, 33 saves. Ripken and Palmero were hitting well over 300 and were on pace for 19 home runs and 108 RBIs for Ripken and 33 and 110 from Palmero, respectively. The Orioles were in third place but just six games back with nearly two months of the season left when the work stoppage happened and the World Series got canceled. We have no idea what could have happened with the Orioles then. Look at 1996. We already mentioned that a little bit. 88-74, second place in the AL East. Lost the ALCS to the Yankees 4-1. Again, that team scored 949 runs, hit 257 home runs, had nine players over 20 homers, including Anderson with 50 and Palmero with 39. Four players drove in 100. Alomar drove in 94. Serhoff drove in 92. Mussina won 19 games and finished fifth in the Cy Young voting despite a 481 ERA. 1961, 64, 77, and 80 Orioles. All four teams won 95-plus games, again, including 100 uh, in 1980. But they all not only failed to reach the World Series, they failed to reach the playoffs because, again, no wild card. And in 1982, 94, and 68, they entered the final season of the, the final series of the season in first uh, with first-place Milwaukee Brewers, three games back with four to play. The Orioles won the first three games of the series to even themselves with the Brewers in the standings, but lost game 162, 10-2 to finish one game back of the division and out of the playoffs. As we all know, the Orioles were bounced back in 1983 for 98 wins and capture their third World Series title uh, and their last to this date. Yeah, if I had an honorable mention, I'd throw 2016 out there. Another year, the Orioles were just counted out, and they outperformed everyone ex- everyone's expectations. Mark Trumbo was incredible that year. Adam Jones was still very steady. Manny Machado was having another MVP-like year. So I'd throw that out there. You know, obviously a heartbreaking loss. That's one of the more heartbreaking games I've ever watched as far as baseball goes. Uh, you know, to the Toronto Blue Jays walk-off home run by Edwin Encarnacion. But, you know, still... Too incre- soon. Too soon. Yeah, st- still an incredible season. I-, I think that's another one of, you know, this run from 2012 to 2016 where the Orioles won more games than anyone else in the American League. And it just kind of capped off that run. And it was just, it was still 
a great season to watch. Unfortunately, it didn't happen in 2017. They tried, you know, they tried to retool and come back out and do it again, but they didn't. But still, an honorable mention in my opinion. Absolutely, it was uh, t- so many great seasons. Uh, again, this is a team that from 1961 to 1986 only had one losing season. Storied franchise, Sto- for sure. storied franchise, and a, a team that won 90 plus games 17 times in that in that uh, 24 season period. If there was a wild card in the in that era, the Orioles would have been in the playoffs almost every year, almost every year, for and, sure. And for sure, they'd have more than six World Series appearances and more than three titles. I I, I long to root for a team that's that kind of that's that kind of good. Right uh, now, before we get our next guest on the line, I do want to say call C3 American Exteriors to get roof and siding repairs for the cost of your home insurance deductible. Don't let the insurance industry get one over on you. Call C3 at 410-401-9797 or go to C3America.com for a free analysis. And again, if you have tested positive in the last six days or or have a, a uh, household member or coworker who has, please go to covidplasmatrial.org. Again, covidplasmatrial.org, brought to you by Johns Hopkins University. As always, we're coming to you live from Chesapeake Employers Insurance Studio. The latest edition of PressBox is available now, and it's our very special annual Best of Issue. On the cover, we recognize our Mo Gabba Sportsperson of the Year, Trey Mancini, whose co- courageous fight against colon cancer and dedication to the community inspired us this year. We also recognize other Baltimore sports fighters, the current and former local athletes and coaches who have taken active roles in the fight against COVID-19 and for social justice. PressBox is available for free at over 500 area locations, including 60 Royal Farm stores, and you can can always find the entire edition as well as the best daily coverage of the Orioles, Ravens, and Terps at PressBoxOnline.com. Definitely go pick this issue up. The artwork on the cover is incredible and definitely want to read about Trey Mancini and his honor as Mo Gabba Sportsperson of the Year. And certainly pick up that press box issue where you can find all of uh, Todd Karpovich's writings for Press Box Sports. And with that in mind, Todd is uh, on the line right now. Todd, happy new year to you. You too, Paul. How's it going? Doing pretty well. We're actually um, we're operating here. We came in and our MacBook was missing, so we're doing all audio today, unfortunately. Um, but we're glad to have you online. Always a pleasure to talk with you, Todd. Um, I hope you find the MacBook. Jeez. Yeah, we we hope so too. Hopefully, we'll get it back by. Uh, it, for all I know, it could just be out for repairs. But hopefully, we'll get that back by next week and be able to do a regular show. Uh, Todd, the Orioles hired Tony Mancellino to be their third base coach and the infield coach, although they haven't made an official announcement yet. What are your thoughts on the hire, and why hasn't the team made an official announcement? I, I guess, um, you know, I think it's a good hire. You know, I, th- I think, um, you know, they're still trying to find, you know, the, um, the right chemistry, you know, with, with the coaches, um, you know, and also, you know, they're fine trying to find these coaches who can work with, they're going to be a young, young team. Trying to find the right coaches who can, you know, uh, give advice and help help some of these young guys learn, you know, base running, you know, and, and kind of adjust to the major league level. And I think it's probably just a matter of um, budget issues and maybe, you know, maybe the new year, you know, the kid's contract and who knows, um, probably an administrative issue, not announcing it, you know, but it's coming. Hey Todd, it's Zach Goodman. Uh, we watched this this Orioles season unfold in 2020, and some of the base running wasn't perfect, but I overall thought it was pretty solid. What do you think was the reason for Jose Flores to be let go and to bring in this new third base coach? Well, I just I think just need a new set of eyes, you know. Um, and I guess 
Maybe it's a matter of rapport with the players. Maybe it's something Brandon Hyde saw. Who's to say? You know, um, maybe just one of the they probably need to make a change. Um, you know, but again, it comes down to they're going to, at this point of where the franchise is, they need guys to come in, you know, sort of, sort of emphasize instruction, sort of work with these guys one on one. You know, it's not a matter of just telling, you know, guys when to round the base and when to stop. You know, they got, they got to be pulled aside and told why, you know, the coach made that decision you know, and how to read the game. So I think that's part of it. It's a matter of, you know, maybe a guy coming in, a little more experience with, uh, you know, working with players and on the, on the instruction level. Now, Todd, the team trade away, traded away Jose Iglesias, uh, Danny Echeverria signed in the MPO, and, ha- and Heysel and Kim uh, signed with San Diego. Echeverria seemed like a logical fit. Kim was really probably never coming here. My question is, we sit six weeks out from spring training. Who is the Orioles starting shortstop on opening day? Because he's not here yet. No, I know, and, and like Elias said, they're, they're going to look at, um, you know, they're going to look at the free agent market. Maybe they bring somebody in like Iglesias. I was surprised by that move. I think we all he were. He was such a productive player, you know. I mean, um, and you know, he, he wasn't he wasn't real, wasn't that expensive. You know, he's a guy who could, you know, he dealt with some injuries, but when he was in the lineup, he was productive. So I guess you know they're going to give some look at some of the maybe younger prospects. So that's that's a big job, you know, especially for this team because they have to be really really good defensively. You know, they, they have a very slim margin of error because of their lack of experience. You know, Mike Elias said he's going to look at, you know, maybe look at the free agent market to see who's available. So they might bring in a veteran stopgap, you know, as, as they evaluate talent. But, again, Brandon Hyde, man, he's going to have a really busy spring training looking at a lot of players and, and to see who goes where and who can contribute. You know, so that, that's, that's, gonna, and that's going to be at the top of the list. It's fine, you know, a left side of that infield. Yeah, uh, I, I mentioned Freddie Galvis, and uh, Stan seems to think that he might be a little too expensive for the Orioles. Do you think the Orioles take a look at Freddie Galvis? His fielding percentage is better than Echeverria's, better than Andrelton Simmons's, and just a tick below Jose Iglesias. That could be a really solid fit for the Orioles. Yeah, I agree. You know, and again, you know, he, he wouldn't be real expensive. You know, he, he's thirty-one. So he's a little older than you know what um what they'd like to have. But again, he he might be a perfect stopgap. You know, for them. Um, Especially because they want you need an experienced shortstop. You know, you need a guy who can um, who can come in and make plays. And again, you know that that's going to be the Orioles' bread and butter. They have to be very good defensively because they might have times where they they struggle at the plate. You know, um, and again, he's not he's not he's not a uh, he's not a great hitter. You know, but he's very good defensively. So he's a guy that will be at the bottom of the lineup as, as far as you know as far as where he would hit. But he'd be a guy who could you know he'd be a seamless transition at infield. He also could be a guy who could you know teach again. You know, going back to that 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 theme, they teach some of the younger guys. You know, some of the ins and outs of being a solid defensive infielder. Well, yeah, and the, the Orioles certainly need to be strong defensively because they have a, a young starting rotation. However, for the first time in a long time, there seems to be a bit of stability in that Orioles rotation. You have John Means at the top, followed by Cobb, Kramer, Keegan Aiken. Um, who has the inside track at the fifth spot? Is it still Jorge Lopez? I think I think it is. I think they're gonna, they're going to look at a lot of guys. I think it's going to be. Um, one of those situations where they're going to they're going to be a lot of moving parts in the back end of the rotation. Um, you know, this 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 past season was really you know really even though these guys some of these young guys you know like Kramer and Aiken had success. Um, it really wasn't a good barometer because it was a sprint. You know, we're going to see how how these guys do over the course of a, of a full season. You know, God willing that they can play a full season because of COVID. Um, you know, and you looked at the past year. You know, guys like John Means they struggled early and got better at the end because that's how. You know, veterans, you know, veteran pitchers sort of get revved up, and some of the younger guys started strong and sort of faded at the end. So I think there's going to be a lot of moving parts. And again, like I said, um, 
Mike Lyons, I mean, uh, Brandon Hodges have a lot of decisions to make because they have so many players. Mike Lyons has done a really, really good job. I mean, stocking this organization with arms. They have a lot of young arms, you know, and they're in a top, they have a top 10 farm system now, which was um, really the albatross, you know, years ago. The Orioles, they really didn't have any players they could bring up because they, they made so many, you know, um, bad trades, you know, within the other, the other you know, the other, um, when the other parents was here. So we'll see. They, again, you know, and Mike Lyons, that, 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 that's his strategy. He wants to stock the arms. The Orioles plan to win with pitching, and, that, and that's um, I think that's, that's a good way to go. That, that's how you're going to win games. Well, yeah, uh, and I'm glad that you brought that up because you know we, we've seen since the beginning of 2020 departures of Iglesias, Hanser Alberto, Renato Nunez, Richard Blyer, Miguel Castro, Michael Givens. It's evident the Orioles are still in a sell mode now, uh, in a sell now mode uh, to improve the ball club. Aside from Alex Cobb, who could you see as the next trade chip for the Orioles? Well, you know, it's good to see. Um, and, you know, they they got a pretty strong bullpen. You know? Yeah. So, um, you know, they have guys, they have a lot of pieces there they can move, um, you know. But, again, you know, at this point, they, you know, guys like Tanner Scott, Sean Armstrong, you know, Dylan Tate, Hunter Harvey, these are guys that are, they're going to be the core of the, and these are guys you're building around, you know. So yeah. You, wanna, you know, at this point, the world's got to start to think about, you know, get out of the cell mode and start, you know, developing, bring them up, and let's try, you know, let's take the next step in his rebuild and try to start winning some games, getting these guys their innings, and nurturing them. Because, you know, they, they can't keep, you know, they've been in cell mode. At some point, they got to shut that off and start having, you know, having some of these guys produce. And, again, I don't think you mess with the bullpen. You know, but, you know, there's Trey Mancini, you know, we talked, I think you mentioned him. He, he, he's probably a valuable guy to trade, but you, you don't want to part with him. You know, he's a guy who's the heart of the franchise. Yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, there'll be some veteran guys. Maybe they bring in a sign that they trade in the midseason. But, again, they have a really young core group of players that I think they want to hold on to. So it's going to be tough decisions to make. And Mike Lyons, again, he's gotten – he's really gotten a lot back for what he's traded away. So they're, they're pretty stacked. I mean, they're not – unless they're, I think they're blown away for an offer. You know, I don't think the Orioles do a whole lot of movement next season because I think they're they're starting to – they're going to, they're ready to take a next step in their in their rebuild. Hopefully, you know. Again, this past this past year has been terrible. It was a mess, and you know, with the sixty game season and everything else, it was, it's really hard to gauge where they are. But um, you know, at some point, the Orioles need to turn a little bit of a corner here, and I think they have a. They're finally getting in a position where they have a lot of young players who are on the verge of being key contributors. Todd, you mentioned bullpen depth, and the Orioles do have quite a bit of that. And one of those guys is Paul Fry. He's the left-hander. But he's now 28 years old. He's kind of going to be on the older side when the Orioles start to become a playoff team. Is he a guy the Orioles could look at trading, especially being that he's a lefty, and he probably could bring some good left-handed value to another team, maybe a playoff contender? He could, but he's really got to find some consistency. He, you know, he, he's, he's really up and down. He struggles with allowing home runs. Um, and he's got, he's not a power guy, you know, but again, like you say, he'd be a valuable chip for a team to be a middle, you know, and a mid inning guy. But again, he, he's really got to be more consistent. And again, yes, I think if he performs well, he, he'd be a guy they might be willing to part with again because of his age um, and, and what he, what he produces. Now, somebody, Todd, who is untradeable and was recently making headlines in Baltimore for his controversial comments regarding his contract and the rebuild is Chris Davis. Now, most of us thought he had played his last game for Baltimore, but Mike Elias said he's still in the team's plans for 2021. What are the Orioles' plans for Chris Davis? Is he really expected to contribute, or are they really kind of just holding on to him in case there's another truncated season so they can save some money? 
Well, I think they're at their sooner at their wit's end with Chris Davis, and he, like you said, they can't trade him, so they're stuck with him. Um, they're not going to—I mean, they're not just going to cut him loose and eat, eat that money. Um, although they might have to. Um, but again, um, Mike Ly—I mean, Brandon Hyde's taking a hard stance on Chris Davis. He, so, you know, he said he's going to have to come in like everybody else and compete for playing time and try to get as many bats as possible. So the days of Chris Davis being inked into the lineup and you know being an everyday player are over. You know, he's, he's got to, um, he is going to have to make the most of his opportunities when he gets a chance because I think the patience has run out on him. Um, and again, he had a fairly good spring training last year. Um, but of course, you know, again, again, he resorted back to his, his ways, you know, in an injury play season last year. So, um, yeah, and, and really, does anybody see the light going on with Chris Davis at this point? You know, it's just, um, it was a bad contract. They're going to have to deal with it. And it's, again, um, at this point, you know, Chris Davis going to be playing time like everyone else. And again, I don't, you know, unless he's really lights out, I just don't see him being, you know, a guy um, you know, that's going to play every day, especially if they move Mancini to first base. You know, they're not taking bats away from Mountcastle, you know, for any reason. So, yeah. um, you know, they're stuck with him. But again, we're not going to, I don't think we're going to see a whole lot of Chris Davis in the summer unless, unless it's a drastic, drastic change. And what he's able to contribute. Yeah, so, something's got to happen with him. Otherwise, he's just going to be a $23 million uh, part of a bench. Um, yeah. Now, for the better part of a year, we've heard that we won't see Adley Rutschman until 2022. Suddenly, however, that stance seems to have been softening amongst those around the club. How did his performance at the alternate training site and in the instructional league change people's minds? Well, um, you know, he's a guy. He's a guy. If, he, if, he's a guy, if he's a guy who can come up and be a game changer and contribute, then they're going to bring him up. You know, that's just, you know, they're, they're going to let him just, you know, you know, Mount Castle, you know, he, he, there was all the clamor for him to come up, come up, come up. And they were really patient with him because there were things that you know, they needed him to work on. You know, there were, there were several, you know, especially defensively. With Rushman, I mean, they pulled him right out of Aberdeen because, you know, he, would have, he was ready to kill somebody with his bat way he was hitting the ball down there. And, and they moved him up. And if he's a guy who is just tearing it up, you know, and they're going to bring him up. And again, he really performed well in that summer league. He's he's a guy who's locked in. He's he's a he's a generational talent. And if he stays healthy, he's a cornerstone of the franchise. And again, it, you know, if he comes up, there's going to be a buzz around Cameron Yards. There's going to be excitement. I'm not saying they're going to bring him up to put fans in the seats, but again, um, you know, in the back of their heads, they, they know this this guy is when he comes up, it's going to change the complexion of the franchise. And if he's ready, you know. Um, He's right. They're going to let him play. You know, there was some, you know, discussion about, you know, him getting service time and, you know, and what it would mean for his contract. He's going to price himself out. I don't think you worry about that stuff. You worry about right now and what he can do and, and bring him along and, and develop him. And if he's ready to come up, then he's ready. You know, and the Orioles, you know, they talk about a guy whose time might be running out. I mean, Chance Disco, you know, he's another guy has been yeah. really inconsistent. Um, I thought he was out of shape. You know, early part of last year, you know, and um, he's been up and down. So, you know, there could be a spot there for a guy to come in and contribute. And Orioles do have some depth of catcher, so they have options. But, again, it's something to keep an eye on uh, in 2021. Uh, when is the earliest you think we could see 2021, and then when do you actually expect to see Adley Rutschman? Oh, sorry, can you repeat that? Uh, uh, my my apologies. Uh, when, when is the earliest that you think we could see Rutschman? And then on top of that, when do you actually expect to see him in 2021? I think the earliest would be a September call-up, honestly, um, just so he can get – because he, he didn't play in the game last year. Yeah, that's um, true. So he's, he's, got, he's got to build up some more innings. You know, they got to see what he can do 
over the long haul. Honestly, yeah, I think it'd be, if he comes up at all, it'd be a September call for a few at-bats. Um, is that feasible? You know, I, um, maybe. You know, I don't know. You know, I, I think, um, you know, they set their sights on you know, him coming up in 2022 and being, being a major contributor. But, you know, it depends on what the team does. I think the Orioles are going to be a team that has the potential to start, start fast again. Um, because they have so many young players, energy, and, you know, with the analytics, teams not having a whole lot of, you know, major league film with some of these guys. Um, but I think, you know, and the thing, I think they might, you know, they might, there'd be a team that might fade down the stretch because of their youth. Um, so, again, um, if they want to get rushed with some major league at-bats, you know, just to get some experience, you know, but I don't think, I don't know if they'll do that. I think he's a guy we'll look at 2022. You mentioned a little bit ago in this segment that at some point the Orioles need to get out of sell now mode and start focusing on wins. Does Adley's arrival put the Orioles into the phase of the rebuild where the emphasis turns towards the on-field product and wins? I cannot imagine not wanting to surround the generational talent, as you mentioned, in Adley Rutschman with a competitive team. Yeah, I think when he comes up, it's going to be sort of a, you know, Orioles are going to be looking to you know, have an eye on that wild card, you know, somewhere. Um, and again, you know, and, and if this pitching comes together, you know, with some of these young guys, these young arms, and, you know, and, and they can be competitive, you know, um, it might be sooner than later. And I think, I think the Elias really has, you know, a lot of the pieces in place. But yeah, when Rushman comes up, he, he's not going to be coming up here to lose 100 games. That's certainly not, yeah. they're not going to put him in position to do that. Um, when he comes up, it's going to be that, you know, the, 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 the switch is going to flip, so to speak, is when the Orioles start thinking about, you know what, we're not, we're, we're moving closer to competing mode than we are rebuilding. I mean, we're at what, you know, it was this year three of the rebuild, um, and then we think they're thinking, you know, five years. So, you know, we're, you know, you're not going to rebuild. <laughs> at some point, you've got to start thinking about competing, especially when you made all these moves and you got all these young guys that are developing, um, you know, Mike Elias, you know, he's, he's a smart guy. I think, I think he's done it the right way. You know, he's, he's nobody, you know, pretty much untouchable. And, you know, and he, he's stocking, he's looking at the, you know, Dominican bringing guys, catching, you know, lightning in a bottle with some of these players. Um, but yeah, I think, I think, um, at some point, Russia comes up, they're going to be, start tur- it'll be more toward turning the corner than they are, you know, restocking, you know, the miners for, for future, for future uh, success. All right, well, Todd, before we let you go, did you happen to catch the article for The Athletic by Andy McCullough where he wrote New Year's resolutions for all 30 teams? I did not see that, no. Okay, well, his resolution for the Orioles, if I may, uh, sorry, I have to get to it real quick. Um, His resolution for the Orioles uh, was continue to operate within the economic framework of the collective bargaining agreement. And he went on to say, it's going great. No, that is unfair. We are picking on Baltimore general manager Mike Elias, who is mostly just saying the quiet part loud while explaining why the Orioles cut ties with Hanser Alberto, one of the few useful players from last season at the non-tender deadline. They did the same thing with Jonathan VR, one of the few useful players in 2019 a year before. They will continue to tank in this fashion until it either starts to bear fruit or fails. Money will be saved. Losses will accrue. No carping from the commentariat about the consequences of non-competition will change anything. Happy New Year. Now, first and foremost, that is not a resolution. It's basically no. just it's an opportunity to take a dig at uh, at a team that has lost a lot of games in the last three years. One, the Dodgers report. I don't think he's even. I, I can't remember the last time I seen him in Camden Yards. He doesn't cover the team, you know. So, yeah, uh, I don't know. Uh, for, for me, what what are your hey? What are your thoughts on that? Because t- to me, it's an unnecessary dig when there are plenty of other teams that are bad. And then 
uh, finally, what would your or actual Orioles New Year's resolution be? Well, I think it, I, I agree. I think it's a dig. The Orioles have a plan. They have a strategy, and they're they're they're, they're Mike Elias is sticking close to that plan because again, he did it in Houston. He knows he knows how to you know be part of building a World Series contender. Okay, the guy. I think the guys are, Mike Elias is a lot smarter than Andy McCullough. Um, as far as the resolution goes, um, you know, I think the uh, Oils try to get closer. You know, I think they should be, um, be closer to 500 this season. I think that should be the resolution. I think the um, you know, I think they should keep these, give these young guys, stick with them, keep them healthy. And the resolution is, you know, be a little bit more competitive. You know, not not being the seller of the ALEs, but you know, try to jump into that maybe that maybe that third place spot. You know, and try and try, you know, and try to give um, start showing some of the fruits of what you're building here. Because again, we, we've been we've been you know we've been stock, Elias have been stocking the system as every building. So you know, we're looking into what I think is year three. Let's start showing some fruits of that labor. Let's, let's see some guys. Let's see some guys shine. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I think the Orioles took a major step forward in their rebuild in 2020, albeit in a in a truncated season. I think 2021 is time to finally kind of start to show, like you said, the fruits of your efforts and kind mm-hmm. of start showing better on-field product. Todd, we're going to let you go. Thank you so much for joining the program. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Hopefully we'll get to talk to you again soon. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. All right, Todd. Have a great weekend. Talk to you soon. That was Press Box's own Todd Carpenter on talking about the Orioles. A lot of great stuff from Todd right there. And you know, it, it's, you talk to guys like Dan Connolly and John Mioli and uh, these other people, and, and Steve Molesky and Rich Dubroff, and they're kind of, you know, about in, in the middle on the Orioles. They, they they expect them to lose ninety plus games. I, Todd's perspective, he expects this team to compete. He expects this team to come out there and show that hey. This rebuilding thing is working, and we're not that far away. And, and I tend to agree with him. I think that you know you you always over uh, overvalue your own players, right? I think that's easy to do. Um, but I really think that if you look at this roster and you look at you know Anthony Santander and uh, Ryan Mountcastle and Trey Mancini, you have a really good middle of your order there. And then if Austin Hayes showed what he showed us the last two Septembers, Cedric Mullins being that really quality fourth outfielder who could play 90 to 100 games at all different spots in the outfield. You know, and if if you get most of the same production that you got from the first few months from uh, from uh, Pedro Severino and then that young pitching staff continues to progress and improve, look, this, this team isn't going to win 90 games in 2021. But there's no reason to think they can't win 70 to 75 games. This is not that bad of a team. They've gotten they've gotten a lot better. It's, it's as simple as that. And I think one of the guys you didn't even mention, Yomer Sanchez, Gold Glove winner now yeah. playing second base. He's not going to hit a lot, but he's still a Gold Glove winner, and that's something to say for the Orioles. They're getting better. They're just getting better, and you're going to keep seeing them get better. They will be a lot better come September than they will be when they first trot out on the field in March or April, whenever the season starts. They're going to be a lot better because the young talent is going to keep coming and keep coming. And we're going to be able to see the minors, hopefully, this year, and we're going to be able to see what they're building down there. It's obviously really, really rich. There's a lot of great players in the minor league system. Gunnar Henderson has gotten really good. They're talking about him being a potential top 100 prospect now. All of these guys are going to just going to keep coming up and feeding this major league team, and it's just going to get better and better. I'm hoping 70-75. I think that's pretty realistic, especially if Dean Kramer pitches as well as he did in September, and you get a lot of guys who can have an impact like that, and the young talent keeps coming up. I think this team is set for 
a, a pretty decent season and at least a fun season for that. Well, yeah, and I'm glad that you mentioned Yomer Sanchez because I think his arrival here, I think that 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 the Orioles are looking to have the best defense that they can have. Exactly. Uh, and you, you, he's a gold glove winner. You have a gold glove, gold glove caliber um, outfielder in Anthony Santander, who is a finalist for the gold glove out there. Uh, Hayes and Mullins are good outfielders. Ryan Mountcastle, he, he held his own he's gonna, playing left and, he, and he's always going to keep and, getting and, better. And he's an athletic guy. He's, he's going to yeah. get better. And that's why I think that they have a mind to get an, uh, a defensive-minded shortstop. And maybe that will be... Uh, Freddie Galvis, that remains to be seen. It certainly ain't going to be uh, Adani Echevarria. So, look, the Orioles, for the first time in a few years, we can look at this roster and say, yeah, you know what? They might not be that good, but they're going to be exciting. Yeah, They're well, going to be a good team to watch. And in 2022, we're going to be having a different conversation about this club. We're excited about this club. I mean, yeah. this is the most excited I've been for an Orioles season in a long time. We're only in January right now, and I'm already ready for this whole thing to get started. And I want to go back to one thing Asher Wojciechowski said. I believe it was on 1057 The Fan a year ago or so before spring training started in 2020. And he said, look, okay, I know we're not the most talented team out there, but every one of these guys all of the time is giving 100% effort and we're always trying to win. There's no tanking in their heads. They're not thinking about, oh, we want to tank for a better draft pick. They're thinking about winning and all of these guys are going to give their best effort no matter who they are. They're all going to come out there and try to win, even if that's not the organizational goal right now. So I think everyone has to keep that in mind a little bit. The players, not trying to tank. They're not. They want to play as hard as they can and keep their jobs because this is their job. So I think the Orioles will definitely get better in 2021. Yeah, and that, that middle of the order is going to be formidable. Definitely. I, I mean, think. And then, and then once Adley gets here, man, if he's going to be a call-up in September, if there's allowed to be fans in the stands, I will be at Camden Yards for his first game. Most definitely. I, will, I, I, I was be there. I was at Camden Yards for Matt Weider's debut. I will 100% be there for Adley Rutschman. So hopefully that happens in 2021, maybe sooner than later. Um, September is probably the likely scenario there. That's going to do it for the baseball portion of the Battle Round today. Thanks for tuning in while we're here in the Chesapeake Employers Insurance Studio. Again, apologies for not being live on Facebook. Uh, we had a missing computer when we got here. So um, uh, we just did the best with what we had to work with. Um, but, you know, I think it was a pretty good show considering the difficulties that we were facing. Now, uh, just like our computer isn't here, if you can't be there for Baltimore football games this season, the next best thing is to at least be with each other virtually to talk about them with, with PressBox's Project Game Day. Glenn Clark is with you at halftime of every game, and he's joined post-game by a panel of experts, which will include Ken Zalis and the NFL chick Sarita Hubbard. Find all shows at Facebook.com slash PressBoxSports and post-game at PressBoxOnline.com slash radio. Come vent your frustrations, sing the praises of the purple and black, or explain why everything is the ref's fault all season long. Glenn and Rita will be with you for the Baltimore-Cincinnati regular season finale tomorrow. That's Press Box's Project Game Day every game day this season. Brought to you by Wise Markets and the U.S. Army. Zach, Ravens have a big game on Sunday. It should be It's a very winnable game. They're playing the Cincinnati Bengals, the four-win Cincinnati Bengals. Now, Bengals are on a two-game winning streak. They beat the Steelers, who just locked up the division last week, uh, and they beat the Texans. And the Ravens, if, if they win, they're in the playoffs. They got a big favor done for them after the debacle by the Raiders on Saturday night. The uh, Colts lost to the Steelers despite having a 24-7 halftime lead. And the Browns, without their top four wide receivers, lost a game to the Jets that saw Baker Mayfield lose three fumbles, including a fumble on the last play for the Browns on fourth down that cost them an opportunity to tie the game. What are you looking for this Sunday? 
Well, yeah, it's basically win or go home. They have a couple other scenarios they can get in the playoffs. I, I believe the Browns lose, they can get in the playoffs, and if the Colts were to lose to the Jaguars, then they could make the playoffs as well. But that ain't happening. Both of those things are unlikely. Mason Rudolph is starting for the Steelers, not Ben Roethlisberger, so immediate downgrade. And I'm sure there will be other Steelers starters out. So the Browns are probably going to win. Colts are probably going to win. Ravens control their own destiny. This is not a very difficult team to beat. They're a three-win team, but they're playing better as of late. I don't know if you heard this this morning, but Mike Daniels, the defensive tackle for the uh, Bengals, tested positive for COVID, and there there are up to 10 close contacts that will be out on Sunday. So there could be a possibility of 11 players probably on the starting defense being out on Sunday, which would be a huge boost for the Ravens. I even think if, if, if all of those guys were to play, the Ravens would still win. They won 27-3 to the first time against a better quarterback in Joe Burrow. But, you know, it, it's, it's always difficult in a divisional matchup. You never bet on divisional matchups because they're always a little bit more difficult, and there's always fire to play for and play behind. So I do think the Ravens will win this game. You know, just got to keep doing what they've been doing as of late, running the ball, run on first down, run on second down, pass if you have to on third down, keep running read option, keep running pool option, do things that work for you, and I think they'll be perfectly fine. I'm, I'm not too worried about this game, but there is a lot of pressure on the Ravens. The NFL posted a tweet six hours ago that said, "Will the Ravens make it to the super to hashtag Super Wildcard Weekend hashtag Ravens flock?" Jermaine Pratt, linebacker for the Bengals, says, "Nope, over for them." He might be a close contact too. We're not, you know, we're not sure who this. Guy's <laughs> well, how crazy he, would that he, be he, if he didn't even play? He might not even play. Um, now here's here's the deal, man. The Ravens. This ain't the same squad that that lost that final game on 4th and 12 on that 42-43 yard touchdown reception by Tyler Boyd in the waning seconds of the game. Not the same squad. Lamar Jackson's playing at an MVP level. He is back to being the 2019 version of of Lamar Jackson. Ravens have 933 rushing yards in their last four games. I expect that to continue. Look, they're averaging 177 rushing yards a game to lead the NFL for the second straight season. They have the highest point differential in the NFL. Now, look, I'm not. Nothing is a guarantee, right? But with this team, knowing what's in front of them, knowing that they say Lamar can't win the big games, and knowing what happened in the playoffs last year, and with an opportunity to probably play the uh, Titans again, the Titans again in the playoffs. This team is coming out laser-focused on Sunday. I think you're going to have, again, three guys over 70 yards rushing. And they're, they're going to pick apart this team. It's going to be Tyler Huntley time by the time we hit the fourth quarter. Uh, I'm, I'm looking Agreed. at a big win here. I'm, I'm, I'm saying Ravens are going to win this game. I said on my football on the Football Frenzy podcast, shameless plug alert that I do with my buddy Adam Rothgab, um, randomly, Ravens 38-11. to I was going to go 41-10. Very, very close scores there. Yeah, I, I think they're going to score a lot of points. Yeah, I just I don't see the Ravens faltering against a bad Bengals team that can't stop the run. Um, they, 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 they got run all over by David Johnson in, in Houston, and I expect that to continue with the Ravens against the Bengals. That's going to do it for us. Oh, do you have anything else you want to add? I don't have anything else now. All right, that's going to do it for us here on the Bat Around. Thanks for tuning in. Sorry for the technical difficulties. Hopefully we'll be back next Saturday with a regular broadcast. Until then, guys, stay safe, be healthy, and we'll talk to you next week.